so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your store shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for my patriot food. All right. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. You know what we're going to say. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, the radio chick, along with my episode debonair co-host, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Are you ready for a rock and roll day today? Most certainly am. I'd like to uh, find out who who C.S. Walker is. It's another C.S. in the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to have to say Curtis for you and C.S. for him so we don't get each other confused. Two C.S.'s yeah. in the house. <clears throat> too, too many. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got a great lineup. We've got Maria Espinoza of the Remembrance Project. Uh, she'll be talking to us about border security, illegal immigration, and so forth, because uh, we've got to remember uh, Trump just recently passed that executive order dealing with the southern border. Um, she does marvelous work with wonderful people traveling across the nation with this quilt of the forgotten. We have C.S. Walker, former NSA uh, security uh, security expert, if I can get my teeth in straight, he's going to be talking to us. There's some stuff breaking with Adam Schiff and collusion with the Ukraine. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Uh, There's also more on the steel dossier and connection to Fusion GPS. And, of course, we're going to have to throw in Beto O'Rourke, of course, into that one. Um, And (laughs) taking his mom to a porn movie. That's something I'd really like to do with one of my parents, really. That's a sick person. Anyway, uh, we're going to finish up the show. Uh, we're going to have Sergeant Mike McGrew. He's returning. Um, I got his book in the mail last night called A Higher Call. He was a highly decorated uh, police officer out in Santa Barbara, California. Very moving, very touching book that was written. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his book and about his faith and devotion because now he uh, ministers. So a lot to talk about, a lot to cover, and uh want to welcome everyone that's up in the chat room. Oh, and as a side note, uh, we're going to send a little special prayer out to our sweet, sweet friend, Sweet Sue from New Mexico. Uh, she is back home, uh, but she may end up having to go possibly for another surgery. Uh, she'll know more uh, next week. Uh, we'll keep everyone informed on what's going on with Sweet Sue. But she is home, and she is resting. She had a little bit of a setback uh, today, uh, and I understand she she needs our prayers. So please keep her in mind. That said, Curtis, <clears throat> yeah, um, everyone knows we start off each and every show uh, with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Army Sergeant First Class Christopher Celez. He was killed on Thursday, July 12th of 2018, last year, while serving during Operation Freedom's Sentinel in Afghanistan. And I've taken bits and pieces from the Fallen from the Military Times, as well as from the Post and Courier here in South Carolina. And it starts off as Army Sergeant First Class Christopher Celez died July 12, 2018, serving during Operation Freedom's Sentinel. Army Sergeant First Class Celez was 32 of Somerville, South Carolina. 
He died of wounds sustained from enemy small arms fire while conducting operations in support of a medical evacuation landing zone in Zermatt District, Pakatia Province in Afghanistan. A Georgia-based Army Ranger, in his fifth deployment, he died of his injuries following an attack in Pakatia Province, according to a release from the Defense Department. While conducting combat operations in Paktia province, Celez was wounded by enemy small arms fire per release from the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. He was treated immediately and medically evacuated to the nearest medical treatment facility where he died of his wounds. The battalion mortar platoon sergeant posthumously received the Purple Heart, Bronze Star, and Meritorious Service Medal. Celez had been preparing to leave the regiment at the time of his death, the release said, to join an infantry unit. The 75th Wanjo Regiment suffered a tremendous loss with the passing of Sergeant First Class Chris Celez, Colonel Brandon Tegmier, the 75th Ranger Regiment's commander, said in the release. Chris was a national treasure who led his rangers with passion, competence, an infectiously positive attitude, no matter the situation, he will be greatly missed. Celez had previously deployed with the 1st Battalion to both Iraq and Afghanistan in 2008 and 2011, respectively. His awards and decorations include the Joint Service Commendation Medal, three Army Commendation Medals, five Army Achievement Medals, the Afghanistan Campaign Medal with three stars, the Iraq Campaign Medal with two stars. Sergeant First Class Chris Celez was a great Ranger leader, and he will be sorely missed by the 1st Ranger Battalion. He had an incredibly positive attitude that inspired Rangers throughout the formation. His com- the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Sean McGee, said in release, Sergeant First Class Celez led from the front and always put himself at the decisive point on the battlefield. He was a loving husband and father, and he and his family have been an important part of the fabric that represents the 1st Ranger Battalion, the Savannah community. Under the darkness and pelting rain, dozens of community leaders lined a street and paid the respect to Army Sergeant First Class Christopher Andrew Celez a Somerville native killed in action in Afghanistan. Patriot Guard Riders of Georgia escorted the remains of 32-year-old Celez from Hunter Army Airfield, where he was based with the 75th Ranger Regiment, to a funeral home where his loved ones gathered for a service. On the roughly one-mile route along Stephenson Avenue, the procession crossed under a large American flag hanging from a fire truck ladder. Young military families, some of whom had waited for hours holding small American flags, watched on. Patriot Guard writer and organizer Howard Pete said he hoped for a large showing of support for the Celeste family, which includes the fallen soldier's wife, Katie, and their daughter. The family rarely remembers us, Pete said. They remember the flags and all the people who stood for their hero, and their hero is our hero. 
Roberts, Les died after coming enemy small arms fire while helping to support a medical evacuation landing zone in eastern Afghanistan, Paktia province. His death stunned those who grew up with him in Somerville. They remembered him as a patriot and an upbeat friend. He was just overall an individual who led by example, said James Richardson, who grew up close to Sleaze in junior ROTC at Somerville High School. It wasn't a shock to me once he told me he was part of the Ranger Regiment. Salise graduated from Somerville High School in 2004 and then attended the Citadel until 2006. He enlisted in the Army in 2007 and had several assignments in Texas and Georgia before he was selected to serve with the 75th Ranger Regiment in 2013. He was on his fifth deployment with the 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, when he was killed. Hal Nupp, a friend from high school and the Citadel, said Celez fit the mold of a special operations soldier. He was a bookworm in school and excelled in advanced placement courses. In junior ROTC, he was detailed-oriented and a natural-born leader, friends said. Celez was also warm and charismatic the type of friend who would lighten the mood on any occasion. He and his wife were high school sweethearts who were inseparable, as teenagers Nup said. You can tell from the start that they were a match for each other. A Marine Corps captain, said Nup. Eric Christmas, who also met Celez in junior ROTC, remembered his persistent optimism, even under stressful times. He was always trying to make everyone's day a little bit brighter, Christmas said. The mourners showed up by the hundreds, silently lining up in front of congregation Mikvi Israel, while the sounds of bagpipes filled one of the city's historic squares. And after more than 300 people packed the synagogue for the funeral service, those who couldn't make it inside, soldiers in uniforms and civilians, crowded the open doorway and spilled onto the sidewalk. They were there to honor Sergeant First Class Christopher Andrew Celeste, a 32-year-old Army Ranger and Somerville native. In his home state of South Carolina, flags were lowered to half-staff in his honor. Fellow soldiers from the 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, based at Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, knew Celeste as a dedicated leader who infectiously positive attitude inspired others. At Somerville High School and later the Citadel, where Celez was enrolled for two years before enlisting in the Army, friends remembered him as smart, caring, and upbeat. He was quick to crack a joke to lighten the mood, they said. He seemed to earn the respect and love of everyone who knew him. And to Jennifer Hunter of Somerville, a friend of Celez and his wife, Katie, it was no surprise that several hundred people attended his service. Through birthday parties, holiday celebrations, and weekend visits to each other's homes, Hunter got to know Celeste as an honorable, amazing father to his eight-year-old daughter. I've never seen a man love his wife and child as much as he loved them. Friends said Celeste and his wife began dating in high school and became inseparable. It was also during that time that Celez distinguished himself as someone who looked out for and stuck up for others, said Katie Pease, a friend from high school. Pease 
said Celeste, took her under his wing like his little sister when she was a freshman and he was a sophomore in junior ROTC. The two of them and their tight-knit group of friends spent weekends together competing at drill meets and hanging out at one another's homes. P. said Celeste helped her navigate her high school years. He was an amazing person and became an even more amazing man, said Pease, who lives now in Indiana and was not able to travel to the funeral. Service at the synagogue in downtown Savannah drew the attention of residents who watched from their doorsteps and tourists who stopped to look. Around 200 active duty members of the 75th Ranger Rangerment attended with the funeral underway, dozens of them stood in the street, facing the synagogue under the branches of two oak trees. A three-volley salute marked the end of the service, and the hundreds of people who paid respects to Solis started to file out. Today's show is dedicated to Army Ser- Sergeant First Class Christopher Solis. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We also dedicate the show to the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one of them. Oh, 
You're here listening to Seven Cents here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all that. It. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. <coughs> Excuse me. Just got a tickle in my throat just last second. Oh, man. But, Curtis, in a few minutes, you'll be calling our guest, Maria Espinosa, in. And we're going to be talking about border security and all that goes along with it. Um, came across something, Curtis, which I thought I wanted to play for our listeners. It's called the Illegal Illegals Song. And actually, it's been <laughs> banned from country western uh, stations. They they banned it from the radio. And I'm trying to reach out to the artist. Uh, <laughs> I found it up on, um, oh, oh, shoot, what was it? Uh, there's a website that tracks illegal immigration policies and what it's doing to our country. Uh, and I found it up on their website when I was looking for news articles. And I reached out to them and they said, well, the guy's kind of like disappeared into the woodwork. Uh, he goes by the name of Fat Boy. But there's a rapper out there. This is not the rapper Fat Boy. Uh, it's a different Fat Boy. Um, this is country western music. So I want to play mm. this one because I was listening to it and I was absolutely hysterical. So let me key up my soundboard here so I can get it up here. And oh, let's get this up here. The song about illegals is illegal itself. It was up on illegalaliens.us. Uh, so let's go and play this song because I think you really will enjoy this. Here we go. Oh, 
and breaking. No, my Hugo don't go that fast. So I pulled into the station where he was pumping gas. I said, hey there, amigo, what you got under the hood? He said, yes, so I guess he don't speak English that good. Illegal. Undocumented people. Welfare cars illegal. We love America. I called up the Congress to see what we could do. Is there for Spanish press? One for English press, two? If they want to live free without paying a tax, we ought to ship them overseas and bring our boys back. But we're overpopulated with undocumented people. They work hard, bless their hearts, but they're still illegal, illegal. Curtis. <laughs> hey, I love it. It's, you with me, Curtis? Me, it's like, <laughs> yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, it's, um, I yeah, call I it you. bluegrass boogie woogie. <laughs> <laughs> bluegrass oh, man. boogie woogie. But, but it, you stop and think about it, and you know, it, this is exactly what has been happening to our, our society. Um, when uh, I first moved here to South Carolina back in 2001, had a neighbor across the street, and he worked in construction. And they were doing some work on one of the bridges, and he went to apply for work because, you know, this is his field. This is what he does. And he says, oh, no, uh, we're, we're hiring these Mexicans because they'll work cheaper than you will. A true story. True story. They actually turned around to his face and said, well, no. <laughs> We can hire these guys at half of what we're paying you. Yeah, you got the skills, but you know, hey, we can teach them on the job and half the pay, and you know, it, Lord knows how much of it was under the table. You know, but it, this is what is happening, and no, we don't have a crisis. Man, just a, a handful of years ago, we wiped out measles, we wiped out tuberculosis, uh, chickenpox. You know, these things just were not 
happening, you know, like when I was a kid. We wiped these out. And now with the influx of illegals coming across the border, illegal aliens, they're not immigrants, they are alien to this nation. These diseases are on the rise again. You know, this is this is all uh, stuff that uh, is going on. And uh, Chief mentions uh, for Spanish Press 1 and Arabic Press 2, that is from a Ray Stevens song. And matter of fact, I do have that queued up. So if you want, uh, Curtis, I'm going to play the Ray Stevens song while you dial uh, Maria and get her in on the line here. How's that sound? Oh, oh great. But she's going to call in in about two right. more minutes. Oh, she is? Okay. Well, in that case, oh, let's yeah. get the Ray we Stevens song on while we wait for her. <laughs> Okay, here's Ray Stevens. Hello, this is the IIAB, the Illegal Immigration Assistance Program, a taxpayer-funded division of OPNA for Spanish Press 1, Portuguese 2, Arabic 3, Farsi 4, French 5, Swahili 6, German 7, Italian 8, and if you insist on English, please stand by. If you think about illegal immigration, be careful when you're choosing the nation. Breaking the law in some countries is frowned upon. Imagine that. Sneak into China, they'll call you a spy, ship you to Mongolia till you die, and in the Sudan, they'll hang you in the county you rode in on. <laughs> yeah, don't go hiking and enter Iran, or you might never be heard from again, and in Mexico, you might face a firing squad. Yeah, forget all about going to North Korea. That's a great example of a bad idea. So when it comes down to it, there's only one option you got. Yeah, come to the USA. There's no penalty to grace. You can get caught illegally immigrating.
This has been a public service message sponsored by Oatnut, dedicated to the collapse of the American way of life. <laughs> yeah. All right, that was Ray Stevens. You can find it at raystevens.com. And let's bring in our guest here who's been waiting patiently and always a friend of the show. We want to welcome back Maria Espinoza of the Remembrance Project. How are you today, Maria? I hope I put a smile on your face here. Uh, that was cute. Thanks so much, Annie, for having me on. Oh, it is our pleasure, our pleasure. You know, I swear, the people have been going nuts. There's no crisis at the border, is there? <laughs> well, you know, when you do the work that, that we do, you know, I, I think that what that whole statement is completely ridiculous, callous, and cold-hearted. You know, just yesterday, uh, another law enforcement officer over in Washington State and deputy sheriff mm-hmm. lost his life uh, to right. an illegal alien. Uh, ICE, ICE agent the apprehension of one illegal had his finger bit off. Not only did the guy bite the finger off, he swallowed it. So even if it was being able to be attached, you can't, you know, that's the, terrible. The, the attack on, on our society, on our law enforcement to begin with. And then on the rest of society, because if we can't stop them at the border, then it's free reign. And you work with these people with the remembrance project, you know, the, un, the forgotten people, the victims that, you know, that Congress won't even acknowledge. True, Annie, and the the deputy sheriff that's speaking of is Ryan Thompson that was just shot in a routine stop, and you know the illegal alien came out firing at him, and also shot another uh, deputy who survived. Thank God. Um, but you're right; this is an attack on every single American, whether. You are a Democrat or Republican. I mean, enforcing existing laws, Annie, is not political. And that is a very basic that Americans want, all Americans want. They want safe communities. That's too much to ask for with this Congress, it seems, because now you've got uh, Alexandria, uh, whatever her last name is, AOC, Cortez in Congress, that turned around and says, well, my constituents in my district in Queens are the undocumented. Excuse me? They're not the ones that vote for you. Oh, wait a minute. That's right. New York State is giving uh, ID to the illegals. So now maybe just in New York State, maybe they are voting for her. That, but that's well, not that's a good. Right. That's a good example of how the Democratic Party is, you know, making up their own rules as they go along. They continue moving the goalposts. You know, look, they don't are not for uh, secure borders. They want open borders. They are for sanctuary cities. They're not for the American uh, citizens' safety. They create slush funds for illegal aliens. They force us to pay over $130 billion a year to support illegal aliens, and yet we can't even have a, a, a secure country to fund the wall. And Democrats, a huge um, problem in Congress. But I also blame, Annie, the Republicans, like former Speaker Paul Ryan, for not fully funding the finishing of our wall. We need a border wall system, just as President Donald Trump campaigned on, but also understands that there is a crisis at that border. 
Yeah, they were showing on uh, the news last night how even with the new wall, they found ways to undermine it, how to cut out sections and then dig underneath to get under there. You know, even with the new wall, they're finding ways to come through. And just over the weekend, I believe it was either Saturday or Sunday, they had arrested something like mm-hmm. about 400 of them within a matter of minutes. Yes, and the there was a an express bus from Nicaragua or Guatemala, I forget which country, there were uh, three express buses that unloaded over 170 70 illegal aliens at our southern border, and they crawled through. But there's always going to be people who will try to, you know, circumvent our laws, but we must do all we can. And right now we're not doing enough. And again, it's the Congress's fault. The Democratic Party is um, so far left, Annie. My, I mean, I don't recognize that party anymore. My mom and dad used to be Democrats. They were supporters of President John F. Kennedy way back when. Um, and of course, now all of my family members are Republican. And I guess now they call us conservative. If we follow our constitution, we believe in one nation under God, we believe in laws, and we believe that we should place this country first and its citizens first, then I guess we're called conservatives now. Well, no, actually we're called radicals. We are the right-wing nuts. Uh, but oh, wait a <laughs> minute. We believe point. in the constitution and the, the rule of law, and our founding fathers gave us the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights, Mm -hmm. because they came together, both sides, those that leaned left and those that leaned right, came together and created these documents, these wonderful, wonderful documents that is the foundation, the cement of this house we call the Republic. How radical is that to be thinking that? That we we take a centrist idea that our founders put together to create these documents. They came to the center together. And yes, we're the right wing nuts. Exactly. Uh, And it really shines a light on what Cortez is is all about. You know, if she likes socialism, then she should go live in Venezuela. I think we could probably get enough money together to buy her a one-way ticket. Uh, You know, no return, please. But again, back to the Democrats moving the goalposts. You know, they're not for a secure country. And now that they've, their policies have allowed illegal aliens in, into our country and allow them to, with, to live within these communities under sanctuary city policies, and now they're saying, well, since they're here, we might as well let them uh, vote. We might as well give them whatever they want, social benefits, even though they've not paid into the system. Sure, they get taxed on some of the products that they buy, but believe me, it's, it's number one, it's lawlessness. We cannot continue in this on this route. As you can see, all that this type these type of policies is doing is attracting more illegal alien crossings and putting our lives in danger as in our communities, but also our officers, our border patrol agents, our ICE agents. Um, this has to stop, and I can't believe we're even having this type of conversation. No, the worst part is, is this has been going on not just the last couple of years, but this has been going on for decades, not yes. just a handful of years. This, you can trace this back to the changing of the immigration laws back in 1972. And once that happened, the floodgates 
opened. Now, I lost a friend of mine, a fellow police officer, Bob Mashadi, in, 19, was it, uh, February of 1989, to an illegal alien that had been deported by another friend of mine, an ICE agent, who personally walked him across the border three times. And he was murdered in the line of duty. This is going back decades. As a matter of fact, this was the 30th anniversary of Bob Mashadi's death. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's something new, and we still can't get it right. Well, it's the lack of will to get it right. Um, And, again, Republicans and Democrats are both um, to blame here. And, in fact, former Speaker Paul Ryan, imagine this as your leader, and this will tell you what's below him. He ran away from four angel moms and an angel family member back in 2017 uh, when we traveled in the – heat of the summer, these mothers traveling hundreds of miles, um, wearing their memorial shirts and holding the banners and the photos of their murdered children, asking for some time um, with him to meet for the him, for Paul Ryan to meet with them. And he did not. In fact, Capitol Police was there and we were told to step away from his front uh, lawn um, and his security detail pulled up on the side of his home where he exited into the, that suburban from a side door, whisked away to a supposed fundraiser, not even stepping out to give his condolences to these grieving mothers and ran away. This is a leadership, GOP leadership as well, that we have. Can you imagine how bad the Democratic Party leadership is? And you can see that it's a manufactured crisis, according to Pelosi and Schumer. They uh, and, and Clinton, during the campaign, she declined to accept our invitation to come to our national conference, first national conference for the Remembrance Project. Um, so it's very stark difference in the views uh, of toward Americans that these politicians have. Well, it is, it's amazing because you had also, oh, I was going to mention the executive order Trump had to reallocate funds uh, to the wall completely within his legal right, and then you had 12 Republicans vote against him. And, and yeah. Did they bother to even read the law? If they wanted to change a law that they enacted, they had the power to change that law. They didn't have to vote against him in a resolution, which was the most idiotic thing I ever saw. I'm sorry, Curtis. Go ahead. Maria, do you, do you get a sense that the American people are getting fed up with this lawlessness in D.C. and and the Russian roulette that, that's going on, you know, being played with their lives? Yes, I'm unfortunate, Chris, that the mainstream media, where a lot of people tune in to listen to and get their information, uh, about a year ago, there was a, uh, I guess, a survey done of, of um, cases or stories that were put out um, from the mainstream media, the fake news, they put out 124 articles for the illegal alien who was coming here and talking about that temporary separation compared to one story of an American family whose son or daughter or loved one was murdered or killed by an illegal alien. You know, number one, the illegal alien family put themselves in that situation, put their children in harm's way. If it had been a citizen who behaved in that manner, 
that citizen would certainly be separated from their loved one and they will probably be jailed. You know, so there's a double standard here. And we have been saying this is our 10th year with the Remembrance Project. And as you know, Chris and Annie, we brought the, the angel moms and dads and family members to Donald Trump in 2015. Um, and all the, our 10th year, and we've got a lot of work in the trenches, I say, you know, going to murder trials, attending hearings, participating in round conference discussions with pretty much all level of government, FBI, U.S. Marshals, local police departments, even DA's offices, and, um, you know, the court system. So we understand what's going on, but the American people just are not getting the message still in that fake news. There's a reason why they're not sharing the truth, because I believe that that Democratic Party would completely implode because they are lying. But we do have that the problem that the Republicans in many ways are pretty bad themselves. And it's going to take every single one of us to come together in your own areas, um, connect with a group where you can educate yourselves, identify good candidates that will place Americans first, support that candidate in every way possible and get them elected. So they, they can, they can replace the people who are up here in the swamp. We spent two years in the swamp in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're back home in Texas now. We're going to work even harder here and focus on Texas and get the word out. But we can certainly um, change the, the direction of this country and getting Donald Trump elected as our president and leader, commander-in-chief, was step one. We have to uh, circle the wagons around him and demand that everyone assist in making America uh, number one again. And that is a huge amen. You know, I was thinking because you were talking about stuff that happened in the past, and I was remembering you and I having the conversation here on the show. And believe it or not, Maria, this July, it'll be 10 years I've been doing this. And I know you've been on the show on and off over the last five years at least, minimum of. Mm -hmm. I know you were fairly new with the Remembrance Project. You had just started it up, and you were getting ready to go to D.C. at the time. Uh, it's a, a huge uphill battle that you have that we have. And you were so right. There's the old saying that all politics is local. You start at the local mm -hmm. level with dog catcher, your school board, your county council, whatever, and you work your way all the way on up. And I'm surprised because even now my own uh, rhino senator, Lindsey Graham, is sounding like a left, a right-wing nut with his strong stance, mm -hmm. thankfully, on the border security. He, he finally smelled the coffee here. But, you know, one of the things that gets me ticked off, I hear the left always saying, but they're not costing us anything. These illegals, <laughs> uh, they can't get any any benefits. They can't get anything. And that is the biggest lie ever told. I know personally where I have escorted illegal aliens to the local hospital, and they'll have four or five different Medicaid cards all under different names. Well, who's paying that Medicaid bill? You and I are the legal taxpayer. Someone's paying for that Section 8 housing. Someone is paying for those food stamps. Someone's paying for that welfare. Oh, and don't forget about the Social Security that they're going to get when they haven't even earned an honest dollar yet. It does cost us in the medical cost for their health care, the education of their children. They dump their Thank kids you. into that's, our public schools. Huge. They can't speak English. That yes, and now we there's a huge them. problem. It, 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and a Go snack. Go ahead, Maria. Yes, um, you're right. I mean, education is a, a big bulk of the the cost to Americans. Um, adjudication, the IRS uh, gives them tax uh, the tax um, earned income credits, um, and they're not even they're not even citizens yet. They're getting taxpayer dollars. So if people aren't doing their research, and obviously they you can't have a conversation with them. And, and that's part of the problem, but it is incumbent upon, upon all of us to try and educate our family, our friends, and, you know, get wise in bringing things up. For instance, I'll go to the grocery store and, you know, I might say something about, um, you know, someone cutting in line, you know, you know, they, they need to wait in line. Just, you know, I don't know, I stop by conversations um, wherever I can. You know, and if I can start a conversation with um, giving an example that my father was in, from Mexico and came here the right way, um, you know, and I'm thinking of a specific incident that just happened a few days ago. Um, you know, you, you just have to be able to reach people and, you know, um, we're sort of in a desperate situation because we have no other avenues other than outlets like yourselves. And that's why we try to get on all the radio stations as we can. Um, and get our families on. So I'd love, Annie, to bring some families on and uh, for you to interview them because they, the public needs to know the truth. And as you know, uh, there's very, very few outlets that will even listen. I mean, look, I'm Latina, first-generation um, American on my father's side. My mom is a fifth-generation Texan. Um, you know, I have have worked out in the strawberry fields at all. On the Mexican crew, too, uh, Thanks to my uh, the foreman, who was my father's cousin, got us on that crew. But it shows the hard work that we've done. My father was a farmhand and a lumber uh, worked in a lumber mill. Then he owned three restaurants. Um, that's American dream. But you know, he came here the right way. Never flew the Mexican flag. Um, you know, so I think it's important to hear voices like mine. But yet, you know, you don't. We don't get the microphone often enough, and it, it certainly. Um, not much on the national level, and I'm thinking maybe we're just too effective. Maybe a Latina's voice uh, speaking the truth would be maybe too effective. And so I wonder um, who has bought out or who has sold out the American people. You know, I think it goes to high places. Marie. Absolutely. And you know what? You and I will Maria. put together mm-hmm. a whole show. We'll do a whole entire show <laughs> with, with these families <laughs> and we'll put all these issues out there and get, get other experts on here. And we'll do an entire whole three hours just for you, Maria. How does that sound? That sounds great, Annie. And, and Chris, you had a question? Yes. Um, Curtis. Curtis. For those, or see, yes. for those who came here legally, are they really speaking out? They I really are. Don't hear much. Yes, they are, and there are groups. There's a um, there's a group called LIFA down in Florida, and I mean they have a national network, and um, they're Legal Immigrants for America or, or something like that. I have to forget LIFA.org, I believe. Uh, but Amapola Harnsberger is um, their co-founder out there, and you know they're pretty um, upset. Um, and bothered by the fact that, you know, they came here the right way. They did all the right things. They applied. They paid their attorney fees. They waited. And here we have the United States has illegal aliens, and they're considering giving them an amnesty. 
Now, either we are a lawful nation or we are a lawless nation. Either we have laws or no laws. We're going to either enforce laws upon certain individuals or we're not going to because right now those laws are not being enforced on foreign nationals who cross into our country illegally. So they're rewarded, they're encouraged, and they're emboldened. Not only that, once they're over the border, they disappear into the fabric of our society, never to be seen again. Or is it something like only about 2% of them actually show up on their appointed court dates? You know, they just released Correct. how many of them out of that one detention center down in Texas by you? What was it, like about 1,000 they just released just over the weekend? Oh, this is crazy. Right, right. It, it is. It's outrageous. And here, look at this. This will give you a your listeners a, an idea of what's going on. There are about Forty-five to 48,000 beds in detention centers. There are over 800,000 foreign nationals that need to be detained, so they're just out there in the community loose. And those are the uh, 2% that, that you're talking about. Most of those 800,000-plus will not show up for their court appearance. It's completely uh, out of control, and the reason it's out of control is because laws are not being enforced, because you have sanctuary city policies, because you have these slush funds that some of these mayors from major cities throughout the United States created in order to assist illegal aliens, and that is the tax dollars of the citizens in that state. It's very backwards right now, and I just thank God that President Donald Trump was elected through the hard work of people like yourselves, people like your listeners and organizations like mine that were there are finally fed up, but it's going to take us um, even more work. And like one individual I heard say, what, what do we need to do? It's fight, fight, fight. We cannot give up. The other side is well-funded. Um, we have right on our side. We have God on our side are going to have to really dig deep and work even harder uh, um, and not just listen to the radio <laughs> and not just go and <laughs> attend meetings, but we have to take action and help out one another, help out the education issue, help, help out the pro-lifers, the Second Amendment people. So we all have to start showing up at other groups' events and really come forward with full force. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we can all start in their local communities is attend the school board meetings. And when you go to the school mm -hmm. board meeting, ask them to tell you how many children of illegals are enrolled in the system, how many English as a second language tutors have they had to hire at the cost of the taxpayer for these special students, because they are considered special ed at this point. You know, what is it costing us in tax dollars to feed them the three meals a day, to give them the medical mm -hmm. care? What is costing us in our budget? And are we a sanctuary city or not? Are we someone? Because thankfully, in where I live, the um, sheriff is proactive and he will not put up with the illegals. If he catches them, you know, in an arrest or something like that, sure, ICE is going to be notified. But that's another thing. That's a good step forward that we just had because there was a judge that ruled in Trump's favor about the detainers, the ICE detainers, on criminal illegal aliens in here, those that have been arrested for a specific crime. And they said, oh, no, 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 there's no time frame on executing that detainer. It doesn't have to be executed within 48 hours. If ICE gets there a week after the guy's in jail, 
fine. That's good and right. dandy. There's no time frame on it, which is a step forward. And, but but exactly. you don't realize also the largest segment in our prisons are illegal aliens that have been arrested for committing a crime. Not arrested because they're here illegally, but because they actually committed a crime and brought them into the purview of law enforcement. Exactly. That is a big step for um, our law enforcement and in, in ICE. Um, but ideally, you know, the jail should be deep holding them until ICE shows up because it is more dangerous for our agents and police officers, you know, out in the field to either um, – what is that would be the server an arrest warrant or make an arrest. It's very dangerous for them as you, as you know, and, and time and time again, uh, former ICE director Tom Homan has stated that he also stated that um, anyone that would be violating title eight, section 1324 of our criminal U S code should be uh, prosecuted. Meaning if these mayors are aiding and abetting illegal aliens, they should be prosecuted, and they prosecuted. There are specific uh, violations with specific punishment, and no one is um, willing to pro- you know, prosecute these individuals who are obviously um, violating our laws. Um, so, you know, it's, it's there's so much more that has to be done. But on the going to town halls, Annie, there is a group called Women on the Wall. Alice Linenhan is the leader. She has a national group as well. And, you know, she talks about what is going on in our school system. And it does go deeper than the ESL classes and the budget and all their, um, you know, the, the, our, the one world government has its tentacles deep in other departments, not just the Department of Education. So wiping out the Department of Education on a federal level wouldn't even be the answer because some of these far left politicians had you know, made sure that they would be able to uh, indoctrinate our children. And as you can see with what's going on in the country, that is being done. And they've had this, they've um, put it forth there. Um, it's been implemented right b- below our noses. And, you know, parents need to know what their children are learning. And right now they're not being educated. They're being indoctrinated. And that's just, that is a huge problem. I have a question for you because, you know, you are very active in the Republican Party down in, in Texas there, as well as the work you do with the Remembrance Project. But I seem to recall a number of years ago, there was a law that was proposed, I believe under Governor Abbott, that would have criminalized any government official that would be abetting, aiding and abetting uh, illegal aliens uh, and would make it uh, a crime as well as a civil penalty if someone or property should be harmed in the commission of a crime by an illegal alien. I know South Carolina attempted to pass something like that, but did it ever pass in in Texas? It did pass in Texas, and the Remembrance Project filed an amicus brief in support of uh, Texas's SB4 uh, law. But However, it is in the courts. It went into effect in 2017 uh, in September and um, went right into the court. So um, I'll have to check on that. But you're correct. It it does look pretty strong, um, but it seems like everything is being tied up in the courts. As you can see, we just mentioned that uh, President Trump did have a win through the Supreme Court um, just recently, and that's fantastic. Um, So... You know, we will be looking for 
a case that that we can push forward and demand that our state does follow through with this law because if you do, we don't bird dog it, then I think that we're not going to um, draw attention to it. We're not going to sh- make an example of that the perpetrator, whom, whomever it might be. Well, Maria, it has been a pleasure. And like I said, I'll get a hold of you and we'll put together a whole three hours. You can get uh, Angel Mom families and even the people that came here legally, like my grandparents did. And uh, we'll put a whole show together just around this for the whole three hours will be all yours. Okay, wonderful. That sounds fantastic, Annie and Chris. <clears throat> appreciate your time. Uh, keep up the great work. We certainly need you also to be a voice for the voices out there. Appreciate that. You take well, care. God bless we you for the hard work you, you do. do. Thank, thank you. God all bless right. you all. Maria Espinosa. Maria Espinosa, check her out at the Remembrance Project. There's a link up on the show page. Just click on it. It'll go to the page she puts together for the Angel Moms. <clears throat> Let's bring our next guest in on the line. Um, he is a man about town. He goes by the name of C.S. Walker, former NSA security expert. Good afternoon, C.S. i got to remember to call my co-host Curtis because he also goes by C.S. So we've got C.S. 1, C.S. 2. <laughs> so we've got now Curtis and C.S. How are you today? I'm good, Annie. How are you? And hey, C.S., how are you, my namesake? Hey, I'm doing good, C.S. <laughs> Oh, okay. um, when when uh, we got contacted about you coming on the show, uh, there was something going on with uh, Adam Schiffless, you know. And I, I was looking around, poking around for the news articles uh, about Adam Schiff, and I saw something that was like about a year old about him being tied up with something in the Ukraine and a guns uh, dealer. Now, wait a minute, isn't Adam Schiff one of these? gun control and yet he's being uh, he's getting donations from a Ukrainian gun dealer well the guy's not just a Ukrainian gun dealer see the name of the individual is name, his name is Igor Pasternak and Mr. Pasternak has become a millionaire in the state of California now before you start thinking that he became a millionaire by owning a winery or some kind of, uh, you know, vegetable farm or some, something in agriculture. No, he became a millionaire, get ready for this, for selling blimps and hot air balloons. Oh, we know there's a huge market for those things now, don't we? Well, <laughs> with some more digging, we find out that the man, yes, he is businessman in California, but he's also an international arms dealer. And how? And just by the fact that he resides in California, even though he is from Eastern Europe, he resides in California, and he's selling weapons to foreign countries, that automatically makes him an international weapons dealer. And uh, in 2013, yeah, it was 2013, he held a, a um, benefit to raise funds for... Adam Schiff's campaign fund. Now, the amazing thing about this is that I myself decided to do a little digging and using some of my resources. And yes, I did travel into the dark web. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. I want to do this going backwards. Now, 
we have this whole thing about the Trump dossier. Now, bear with me, folks. Okay. Just bear with me. We have the Trump dossier. Now, we have individuals such as Peter Strzok, who are not just in the, were just in the FBI, but they were also part of the Mueller investigative team. Then you have individuals within the DOJ that basically gave Mr. Strzok carte blanche, which Mr. Rosenstein. Well, if we keep going, who worked with Mr. Rosenstein but Mr. Orr? Mr. Orr, whose wife works for Fusion GPS, Nellie Orr, well, yep. she had connections with Christopher Steele. Well, if you take a look mm-hmm. at Christopher Steele, his boss at Fusion GPS had connections with Adam Schiff. Now, from that point, let's work forward. Adam Schiff, who was friends with Mr. Igor Pasternak. Mr. Pasternak, because of his European international weapons dealing, has backdoor channels into certain governments. And one in particular is the Ukrainian government. Now, the Ukrainian backdoor government, or connections, I should say, were the ones that met with Mr. Christopher Steele. Now, all these people all lead up to one person, Mr. Adam Schiff. The loudest mouth, pardon me, one of the loudest mouth, but the set of the most buggiest eyes that are standing against the president. (laughs) This individual, he is one of the linchpins in this whole thing. The best way to describe it, you have a chest. And in that chest, Holding the lid and the body of the chest together are three hinges. Maybe two, but it's usually three. And he is one of those hinges. See, now it's a situation that if the president or anybody else within government decides to do an investigation on Mr. Adam Schiff, because of his chest pounding and constant criticism of the president, now he has the freedom to say, but he's being persecuted for criticizing the president. When in all actuality, he's friends with a Ukrainian arms dealer who has backdoor connections into the Ukrainian government. Now, why is that significant? Well, we just found out, what was it, two days ago, that the Ukrainian government investigation for meddling into the American elections. But not only that, something else that wasn't reported in the American media, something that I did report or speak about, Long ago, long before this came up, and completely ignored by members of the media, was that the Ukrainian courts found that their government did indeed meddle in the American elections by handing all this information over on Paul Paul Manafort. And that judicial finding has now sparked a complete and total investigation within the Ukrainian government to find out who and what else kind of meddling was involved in the American elections because according to certain members of that government, there is no doubt that their government did meddle in our American elections, not Russia. You know, it's funny because when I had Judge Janine Pirro on, you know, she was a New York prosecutor, 
And I, I said, you know, when I went to the police academy, they told us that to avoid using anything that's fruit of the poisonous tree. So if you falsify a warrant in order to get a judge to, you know, you falsify documents in order for a judge to issue a warrant, those falsified documents, which is a steel dossier, is the fruit of the poisonous tree. So anything arriving from that warrant cannot be used. And yet this is the yeah, very thing they did to General Flynn, uh, uh, to Paul Manafort, the, what they're doing to Jerome Corsi, uh, to Roger Stone. It's all fruit of the poisonous tree. So I don't understand why these investigations have not been tossed completely out on their rear end. See, two years ago, I started speaking about the Ukrainian involvement in the American elections. And that went by the wayside. That was completely overlooked. Nobody paid attention. And I'm like, why did I spend almost 30 years of my life defending this country, doing things for the sake of my country, that once I get out, now my word isn't worth anything? Well, okay, fine. I just did a checkup from the neck up, and I said, I'm taking this too personal. There's a lot of voices out there, and it's difficult to judge which is which. Well, that's the same thing that's happening right now as far as this whole dossier investigation. You have all these voices. You have all these people screaming and yelling. I have all Democrat, Republican from all sides. You have special interests. You have nut jobs. Everybody screaming and yelling about this whole thing. So the waters are muddied. So, of course, continue. They come up with the investigation. The results are going to show that the president – collusion, which is not a crime, which is the part that makes me laugh, that there was no collusion, and all these voices will be, will be calmed and quieted down, which I think is honestly wishful thinking. Now, what they're doing to the president now – Annie, I got bad news for you. This isn't the first time. This was done before in 2012. This exact thing that's happening now, making the president look bad. In fact, even before he was president, making the candidate look extremely bad using official government offices has been done before. In fact, I have a letter right in front of me. Would you like me to read it? Long, okay, here it is. Long story as to why I thought to research this. But there's another historical trend working against Mitt Romney and his brood of only sons. It has been half a century since we've had a president without a daughter. It's happened only once in the past 80 years. And then this individual goes on to go from President Barack Obama all the way down to FDR. And this email was sent by one um, Philip Raines. Who's Philip Raines, for those of you who don't know? Well, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And he sent this email to Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. So the State Department was working against Mitt Romney in 2012 for him to lose the election. But then again, he made it pretty easy with his binders full of women. You know, that comment really shot himself in the foot. But the State Department, this is an official State Department email sent to Hillary Clinton by one of her deputy assistant secretaries. So this whole thing that's happening right now 
to President Trump with the FBI, the top dogs in the FBI, a couple of the top dogs in the DOJ, with all these other individuals working against him when he was a candidate and then the president? Well, this has been done before. And it's always on behalf of the Democrats. So the State Department was working against Mitt Romney. And I just sit here and I think to myself, really, y'all thought this whole thing against the president was something new? I guess nobody's paying attention. Well, fortunately, there is someone out there. Judicial Watch has filed, I'm sure you're aware of this, ethics complaints against Adam Schiff. It seems like Shifty Shift had met with two congressional witnesses, Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS and Michael Cohen. So what is he doing meeting with these witnesses? I can tell you, Annie, I can promise you right now, I can guarantee you, I know, you know 100%, well, you know what, 100,000%. Mr. Schiff met with Fusion GPS right around when President Trump was President-elect Trump. He met with them then. And he was involved in this whole fiasco about the Trump dossier being released. He was involved in the brainstorming of giving the dossier to the John McCain camp. He was one of those key individuals involved in that. Because if you take a look, there was a pretty decent relationship between John McCain and Adam Schiff. So Adam Schiff knew that John McCain would get involved. He'd be, happy, he'd be more than happy to get involved because, let's face it, John McCain and President Trump were not on the best of terms. And John McCain, in all honesty, was a grumpy, old, vengeful individual. And, well, so Mr. Mr. Schiff, I'm not even going to give him the dignity of calling him by his, by his office. Mr. Schiff was deeply involved in meeting with Fusion GPS way before anything else, any of this broke out. Mr. Schiff had his Ukrainian weapons dealer set up the back channels for Christopher Steele to meet with them. Because if you understand politics, there's two channels you can go in. You can go through the front channels, which is basically, you know, you walk up to the person, and everything's on the up and up, everything's recorded, everything is, you know, there's no hiding anything. But then you have the back channels, which is the secretary of a secretary of another secretary, and they keep moving up until they get to the target. And the target would have been, let's say, a member of the parliament or somebody within the intelligence community of the Ukraine. Now, what I find amazing is that a Ukrainian arms dealer and Christopher Steele, who, by the way, went to the Ukraine, spoke with people in the Ukraine, Nobody's made that connection because, as I said, if you, if you take a look at the trail, it leads to Schiff and Clinton, and I mean Hillary. So yeah. Mr. Schiff yeah. has been brainstorming, pounding, yelling, and screaming in order for no investigation to be done on him because if there is an investigation, 
he can then say, this is a witch hunt because I criticized the president. You know, it's funny because just before Admiral Lyons had passed away, he had been on the show here, and I had seen him up at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, the last one we had before he passed away, and he did a lot of this tracing. And not only that, he tied everything in also with Uranium One, and no one's talking about Uranium One and the Clintons and the – I'm going to mispronounce his last name – Panesta. The Podesta brothers, oh. the two of them. You know, there is oh. it, it is a huge incestuous relationship. So if you trace things going from Rob Rosenstein, uh, Robert Mueller, James Comey, uh, the Oars, uh, Fusion GPS, and it, you, it's one huge incestuous affair. You know, I mean, you bring up fu- oh, don't you bring up Fusion. You, you you bring up the whole situation with uh, Uranium One. There's, I I also have in my possession, don't ask me how I got it, but I do have in my possession a memorandum that a company uh, that they have, which they give out to any potential clients, and it basically helps them explain how Scythius works. Now, the name of the company is the Organization for international investments. And they're a global investment uh, company or advisor that grows America's economy. Sounds patriotic, doesn't it? Well, don't let that fool you. Now, this this group has this memorandum, and they give it out to potential clients that are overseas, international investors into the United States. And one of the things that they speak about in this memorandum is national security, national security considerations. Now, the first line blew my mind because according to them, while neither the statute nor the regulations precisely define national security, there are certain statutorily enumerated factors that CFIUS must consider when reviewing a covered transaction. Now, what do you mean that national security is not precisely defined? This is an organization that can... CFIUS is of individuals from different departments of government, state departments being one of them. Now, the FBI are there, but they're only there as a consultant. They don't do a vote. So they have no say in the entire matter. Now, page three of that memorandum goes on to explain that a how to actually get things through. And it's very simple. Let's say I'm in charge of the State Department and you, Annie, in charge of the Treasury and CS is another member of, from another department, so on and so forth. And then I sit there and I go, well, here I have this company Uranium One, and they're very interested in the United States. Oh, okay, so we'll do the 10-day investigation. Hold on. No need. My department already did it. Oh, okay, so we can send it straight to the president. That's how they got through. That's exactly how it works, believe it or not. If I say that my department did an investigation and it's all on the up and up, and here's our recommendation saying why it's on the up and up, 
Well, then it goes straight to the president. It bypasses the board completely. They don't get to read what the company wants to do. They don't get to read who's involved in this company. They don't get to read anything. They just get to read a memorandum of why the State Department is recommending Uranium One to Uranium. That's it. It's scary. And like I said, Admiral Lyons spelled it out so brilliantly. I mean, I actually sat down and I had to reread what he wrote about it and draw a graph. And even then, I had a hard time keeping track of which figure overlapped with another. And the Scipius board, um, that was a lot of that came directly through Hillary Clinton. It didn't even go through most of the board. It just kind of like leapfrogged. Exactly. Like I said, the State Department turned around and said, oh, yeah, it's all good. Here's our recommendation as to why to approve it. And they don't even vote on it. It just goes straight to the president. They get to read that memorandum later. I mean, whenever they want to, because it's too late. It goes straight to the president. And it went to Barack Obama, who said, okay. (laughs) Which. I, with Valerie Jarrett, as I called her, the Black Widow Spider in the White House, she sat there in her web, just pulling all the strings on everyone else. I still think she's she's still pulling the strings. Um, it's not appropriate for a gentleman to say anything derogatory about a woman's appearances, so I will shut the hell up. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to attack the slumlord Var- Var- Valerie Jarrett. It is not appropriate for a gentleman to comment on the appearance of a woman, so I will shut the hell up. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I was trying to figure out how she goes from being a slumlord realtor to becoming one of the most powerful women in the United States inside the White House. I just could never figure that out. she, She jumped on board the Obama train when he was, you know, working as a, you know, working the the community. He was a community activist. And she jumped on board then, and she stuck by his side. And I still think he has mommy issues, but I will not go there any further. But, I mean, she jumped on board then when he became Senator Obama. She was there with him all the way. And, you know, which keeps telling me, yeah, he does have mommy issues. And uh, I just... You know what? Yeah, that's how she got there. She just saw a superstar in the making. She jumped on board and hung onto his coattails and rode it all the way into D.C., right into the White House. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, isn't it true that um, Eric Holder snubbed his nose at Congress when, you know, they were investigating the Fast and the Furious? And if so, and he got away with it, um, why did, why does um, Trump you know, have to go along with their um, investigation of him as um, president. That, honestly, I couldn't tell you as to why the president has this an investigation. But if you want to know, I mean, I have, I have very good friends in federal law enforcement. Very good friends. And the truth about Fast and the Furious... If you're a Democrat, do not, and I stress this so vehemently, 
Do not sit there and tell me that you care about the people of Mexico condoned Fast and Furious when you allowed Fast and Furious to meet its objective. And its objective was cheap oil for the United States. You don't care about the people of Mexico. You don't care about the people of Guatemala. You don't care about the children of Central and South America because if you did, then you would actually be in support of building the wall. Because the United States, out of 197 countries, because, sorry, I don't count the Vatican as a country, if you're the size of a city, you're not a country. You're a city block. When you are fourth, number four, out of 197 countries for child prostitution. And most of these children are coming from Mexico and Central America. Then, you know what? People like Eric Holder need to be put in front of a firing squad. Wow. Oh, and by the way, if anybody well, we, would we like could... to if anybody would like to challenge me on this whole thing about the United States being fourth in child prostitution. Oh, and by the way, Canada's fifth. Um, I can send you the data. It's not something I've made up, and it's not something that I'm just pulling out of thin air. This is a study conducted by the United Nations. Wow. <clears throat> and, then, and there is no crisis at the border, right? No, crisis no at not the at border. all. Huh? We're no, no, everything's peachy keen. We're perfectly fine. Every, it's a mm. beach party at the yeah. southern border. Everybody's dancing to the beach boys and just, you know, just drinking beer and having margaritas. <laughs> okay. Speaking of the border, uh, have you been following the reports on our, our buddy Beto, Patty O'Rourke? <laughs> his, his, his latest that's been coming out because... We we have it where he's attached himself to these hackers when he was a kid, uh, not a kid, but a young guy in college. Uh, he attached himself to these hackers, and uh, he then ended up um, writing these weird stories about killing people. Uh, he wrote po- poetry about how to wax his butt and his genital area. Um, he then takes his mom to a porn, takes him, her to see behind the green door. I mean, that's what every child should do. Just take your parents to watch a porno film and have you know what? I, the I, whole I, thing. I, I think President Trump is having an adverse reaction on me because I see Ocasio-Cortez and I say, oh, this is my friend Moonbat. That's my name for her, Moonbat, because she's crazy. She's a Moonbat. And every time I see... Robert O'Rourke, I'm like, oh, there's Skippy, because he looks like a Skippy to me. I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, but uh, and, and, uh, honestly, ladies and gentlemen, please somebody explain to me why is in the United States you have an Irishman that's trying to be Mexican, but then you have a Cuban who's in the media working for CNN. His name is Abilio, and he turns around and says, call me Jim. I'm Jim Acosta. So we got a Cuban trying to be a Caucasian and an Irishman trying to be a Mexican. Can you just be yourselves, folks? 
<laughs> I mean, but you've got Beto, and part of my dark humor, it's just years and years and years of working at the agency. You develop a dark humor. But Beto O'Rourke, I mean, honestly, this guy, he looks like the kind of guy that's like, I know what it's like when my wife suffers and has cramps because I have her take a baseball bat to my genitalia to show me the pain of those cramps. He looks like one of those idiots that would do that. (laughs) And our friend Kel in the chat room thought that the poem was a joke. No, it's not a joke, Kel. Matter of fact, I was listening to... uh, I think it was Wilkow that was talking about it. And I, and my husband and I were driving back down from Charleston. I just could not get that picture out of my mind when he was talking about waxing his, his butt and his genital area. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I mean, it's a case. See, this is the desperation of certain individuals. This is their pure desperation that they will say any kind of a platitude. They will do anything in order to get your your vote. The only thing they haven't done is what really matters. And what really matters is, okay, here's the situation. Here's my tax. Get down this way, this way, this way. This will work this way, this way, this way. They haven't done that. Nobody stepped up to that. Now, out of all the Democrat, Democrats running for office, there's only one, only one that I actually have any kind of respect for. Only one of them do I hold in and high regard. And that one person is Tulsi Gabbard. She's military. She's deployed to the stand three times. She's the one that went to Syria, found out that Obama was giving ISIS weapons, funneling them through Libya. She was the one that went against the DNC, against Obama, against everybody in the Democratic Party. She went, found out the truth, came back, told President Trump, President Trump said, thank you, no more weapons to Syria. Done. The rebels get no more weapons because the rebels was ISIS. Notice, recently, ISIS has been defeated. Isn't that a coincidence? Yep. 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 Absolutely. And I was watching scenes on it where massive surrenders, there's still some fighters out there hiding out to the very end, but they are defeated. They are effectively done. But the problem is, unless we keep our foot on the neck of ISIS, they can reconstitute. If we turn our back for a split second, unless we win their hearts and minds, and you will never do that with ISIS, you don't understand the truth about Islam. The second we let up any heat, they will reconstitute. My situation is I've been I've been into the combat zones I've deployed and to go looking for the bad guys and my interpreters Muslims they were they were from right there they were Muslims and they were just as dedicated to finding bad people the HVIs and HVTs they were just as dedicated and my favorite one I mean. His name, I I was like, really, dude, that's your name? Can I just call you Tony? And he said, okay, that's good. And he was my favorite one. I mean, that guy, he was fantastic. Didn't have multiple wives, only had one. He said if he has more than one wife, he would kill himself because he's not going to go through that misery of having more than one wife. (laughs) Um, 
he, when I asked him about that, he goes, "Are you crazy? The one is the one I got now is a handful." Um, so I mean, <laughs> I've fought side by side. We've gone into firefights. We've we we went through some, and they stood their ground. They were right next to me. They gave as good as they got, and I we lost a few of them. But they went down swinging, and they went down swinging hard. But then when you have a vast population of Muslims that are moderate, they they have this concept of live and let live, if they don't stand up to the the extremists, well, then, of course, they're going to go running rampant. Of course, they're going to go crazy. The extremists are going to overrun, even though they are the minority the majority is allowing it to happen and fear that they're possibly stopping the work of God, the work of Allah from happening. So they don't want to endanger their possibilities of being with Allah and going against the words of the prophet. But then there are the others that just simply say, I don't give a damn. They burnt my house down. I'm going to whoop some ass. And they did. And they really did. And they just said, no, you burn my house down, you hurt my family, I'm coming at them. That's it, I'm done. No more nice guys. And let's not forget, the Iraqi soldiers that, are, that fought ISIS, you know, they, they were Muslims too. And they did fight back. Some of them didn't, but many of them, many of them did. So, yes. Do you yes, think we'll are... ever get to the bottom of Benghazi and what happened that night? Like, where was um, Obama and um, where was um, Clinton? All right, dude, I got, listen, Benghazi, CS, Benghazi was allowed to happen. Because weapons were funneling from Libya into, into Syria for ISIS. So what had occurred is that Muammar Gaddafi turned around and said, well, you know what? Because you're funneling these weapons from my country into Syria, there are way too many extremists in my country. So this is going to stop. No more funneling weapons. And the people that Gaddafi was going after was not your average citizen. He was going after ISIS cells in his country but because it was interfering in Obama and Clinton's idea or their, their baby, they couldn't get too involved. So what did they do? Okay, Gaddafi was also doing something else. And this is proof that Obama really didn't give a damn about the African continent. Gaddafi was going to turn around and say, okay, here's the deal. From now on, we're going to take our money in the African continent and we're going to have it backed up with gold. We're going to go to the gold standard. And if anybody wants to buy oil from the African continent, they have to pay us in gold. Now, that would not have affected the United States because the United States has vast oil reserves. We can just drill for it, and there it is. But England and France do not, do not have that luxury. In fact, all of Europe does not have that luxury. So England and France got involved. They started bombing the crap out of Libya. And then that emboldened the ISIS terrorists in that country to go after Muammar Gaddafi. 
Because notice, he died, and then Benghazi happened. Well, when that had occurred, Gaddafi, he wasn't that popular with the whole country. So a lot of the population jumped on board with ISIS to go after Gaddafi, and they found him and they killed him. Well, guess what? The weapons would have continued to flow from Libya into Syria, and Europe, their oil would have been safe. They would not have had to pay for, for oil with gold because that would have destroyed Europe. Europe, they couldn't have that. So the American government is happy and the EU is happy. And Gaddafi is, well, basically torn to shreds. So when that had occurred, all of a sudden, the ISIS fighters that were located in Libya decided, oh, well, now that we're emboldened, yeah, See that building over there? That's CIA. Yeah? Okay. Is that bad? Yeah, that's bad. we got to get them. Now, if the United States would have meddled in saving or protecting Benghazi, the, the American consulate, and the CIA uh, secret, which was really not a secret, when you see a, a whole bunch of white people going into one building and you're in the middle of Africa, it's pretty much not a secret. And they turned around and they just said, well, if we kill ISIS fighters, they're going to get mad and they'll turn to Russia. The whole thing, Benghazi was sacrificed to prevent Russia from getting involved. They did not want ISIS turning to Russia for weapons. Obama wanted to keep ISIS as a friend, as an ally, which really wasn't working because at the time, ISIS was still killing Americans and Obama was still looking the other way. All because he wanted to get Assad, the president of Syria, who made him look like a punk out of all. Obama said, oh, I'm drawing a red line in the sand. And Assad said, okay, and stepped right over it and said, what are you going to do now, punk? And Obama did nothing. So Obama's pride was hurt, so he wanted to get even with Assad. That's why Benghazi happened. That, oh, excuse me. That's why Benghazi was allowed to happen. So you're saying they sacrificed a United States ambassador, someone God, who was yes. supposedly one of their friends. God, yes. See, yes, the one thing, the years of living in Washington, D.C., what I've learned is that in politics, these people don't have friends. They have puppets. Politicians do not have friends. When they yeah, say, oh, this, is <laughs> this, 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 this is my very good friend, representative of uh, Nebraska. Yeah, in other words, saying, yeah, this is the idiot that I'm going to use to get my legislation put in, and he's from Nebraska. That's what they really mean. When they say, my good friend across the aisle, no, what they really mean is that jackass over there, that's what they really want to say but they try to keep it civil. And we had uh, Christopher St uh, Stevens, a former fiancé, on the show right after she wrote the book about Benghazi. And if you look at the what was going on, uh, it, it was definitely allowed to happen. And the fact that they called for assistance months beforehand, they knew there was going to be an attack. What, what do you think is going to happen on 9-11? They attacked the embassy in Cairo, and they attacked Benghazi the same day. Well, and no one talks about that. 
Annie, the funny part is that they're talking. They were talking about bringing in planes from from Europe to bring in personnel from Europe. One little problem: we already had gunships in Africa. We already had special forces in Africa. Special forces in Djibouti. Special forces in Mali. We had the gunships in Djibouti. There was no need to go to, to Europe for anything. We already had the manpower and the equipment on station in the African continent. All American forces on the African government were told, stand down. And yet no one wanted to admit to making that stand down order. And you know it could only have come from one place. And that only could have come oh. from Hillary Clinton. Yeah, because Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama... Honestly, because after the after the ambassador was dead, she was out of the picture. Her responsibility was over, over and done with. The ambassador was her responsibility. He got killed. She went to bed for the night and slept like a baby. As opposed to the CIA, well, that falls under Brennan and other personnel, such as President Barack Obama. But what makes me laugh is that you know, as you're hearing all these things and the pieces are falling into place, all of that is forgotten. All of it is forgotten. Nobody's noticed. Nobody's speaking about Benghazi anymore. Nobody's speaking about the Fast and the Furious anymore. You know, all of that put to the side because, oh, that happened during Obama. That's in the past. Really? Okay. All right, so if your wife cheats on you, you next day she can say, oh, honey, you have to get over that. That was in the past. That was yesterday. It's in the past. So live with that. Sorry, dude. I mean, if your spouse cheats on you, the next or, day she'll say, oh, that was in the past. Let it go. Or as Hillary said, what difference does it make? It makes a huge difference. You've got four dead Americans. How much of, of our intelligence was compromised because the buildings were not secure? We have no idea what they got away with. You know, uh, passport-making and visa-making materials, uh, intelligence documents that were not destroyed. And what was it, a month later, the FBI finally shows up at the scene? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like... Um... What's what's funny is that this this actually happened, Annie. I, I I'm not kidding. This actually happened. The FBI, the American American uh, contingency, gets on the ground in in Benghazi in Libya. Hey, um, we're looking for a certain individual. He was the head of the entire entire scenario that happened in Benghazi. Now, we know that he's in hiding. And like, what are you talking about? He's right over there having a cup of coffee. You can go walk, walk right up to him and talk to him. <laughs> and the FBI is like, excuse me, what? It's like, yeah, he's right there having a cup of coffee. Go, have, go talk to him. Have a cup of coffee, too. Enjoy. He was never in hiding. The guy was in plain sight the entire time. He was in a cafe having a cup of coffee, and his people told him, what are you talking about? Just walk right up and talk to him. And they did. He was right there. All of a sudden, they got all cloak and dagger when, and they're like, "What are you doing? He's right there." Seriously? And when 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 I got word of this, I chair laughing. I could not stop laughing. 
I had tears streaming down my eyes. I'm like, I wish every target I had was that easy. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. And it, it, was, so it, was a, they, it was a cluster. As they say in... You know what? As they say in... Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's funny. Like, what are you talking about? He's over there having some kahwa, which is Arabic for coffee, kahwa. And I was like, what? Yeah, kahwa. Want kahwa? We can get you some. Just walk right up. And I'm like, wow, this is a total... Like I said, if you muddy the waters, it makes it more difficult to separate. The more junk you throw into the waters, the more difficult it is. And that's what they've done. They've done that to Benghazi. You know, the entire gold standard that... You know, think about think about that, Annie. Af- the entire African continent is just about a third world nation. Switching to a gold standard and selling their oil, but instead of getting money, they were to get gold, which would reinforce their monetary system. How wealthy do you think the entire African continent would have been? Hmm. There would have been no more starvation in the well, entire continent. There would have been education all over the place. The highest highest degree of education would have been in African, the African continent. That was stopped because the American government, in particular the Obama administration, wanted to keep funneling weapons to ISIS because he got punked off. And they say that President Trump is narcissist? Oh, we need to reevaluate that one. Well, I'm wondering how much the influence of China on the African continent also had Obama taking a step back away from it. Because you know they're building infrastructures left and right. They're bringing companies over there. Uh, they're doing a tremendous amount of building in Africa as well as they South are, America. Oh, they are because... It seems that the pressure that the American government, you know, this administration is putting on them when it comes to tariffs and trade is really making their knees buckle. So they're scrambling to basically, you know, reinforce their economy any any means possible. And they will go to third world nations and they will make they will set something up either with trade money, what whatever it takes in order to strengthen their economy and shore up where it's leaking like a sieve because that's exactly what it's doing right now. And they're hurting. Now, if we take a look at facts, when it comes to economic, you know, the economy and trade, we don't need China. China needs us. Now we could turn around and say, okay, well, you know what? We're done trading with you because we owe you too much money. So we're going to stop trading, but we're going to start paying you back. Also fair is fair. Well, China rather have the trade than have the money. Let's be realistic. They want the trade instead of the money because the trade is worth so much more than what the American government owes them or the American country owes them. So that has them with their knees buckling and their ankles ready to snap. So they go to Africa, they go to uh, South America, in particular Venezuela, where according to Democrats, fine there, everybody's just having a great big rave and that's all it is. It's not writing. They're having a rave. And, you know, 
they're all having a party and they're drunk. And China is meddling in Venezuela as, as well as Russia. Now, every time I see the pictures of Caracas, my heart just breaks because I was down there in Caracas uh, late 70s. I think about 78, 79. What a beautiful city it was and how prosperous Venezuela was. It was it was the gold standard for a South American country. It was so rich, so prosperous, so beautiful. And I look at it to see what Caracas looks like now, and my heart just breaks. You know what, honestly, I mean, it, it, Hugo Chavez, when he tried his first coup attempt, he did his, first, his coup attempt, and he was imprisoned but they didn't banish him. That was a huge mistake. Now, what he did, honestly, in many circles would have called for treason, which would have meant the firing squad. And honestly, Venezuela, right now, right now, Venezuela would not be in this situation if Hugo Chavez was either banished or executed for his attempted coup. Finally comes out of prison, he turns around and says, okay, well, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to run for president. And he promised everything under the sun. Free this, free that, free everything. Wow, sounds familiar. My living deja vu. Anyway, um, so he promised free everything under the sun. Uh, he must be friends with Bernie Sanders at the time. And he becomes president. Well, all of a sudden, things, he knew how to, he, he was a con artist. He knew how to shuffle things around. He knew how to con the people. He would give out, give away free houses. When things were getting a little hairy, oh, he'd go on live TV, and we're going to give away this free house or these free houses. And that would make the people think, oh, everything's good, everything's good. And then when he passes away, here comes the bus driver because Maduro used to be a bus driver. Yeah, before president of Venezuela, he was a bus driver. And next thing you know, he didn't have the charm or the con artist mentality that Hugo Chavez did. So everything's going to hell in a handbasket because he basically doesn't know how to con the people. And the people are starting to re people have realized, oh my God, we've been conned for all these years. And now they want democracy back. They want free and open election and they want the end of socialism and and to me, they're fascists, but they want the end of it in Venezuela. They want to have a republic. And Maduro's hanging in hard. Well, do you think uh, Guadero would ever be able to take power? Do you think Maduro would finally disappear, step down? Somebody in the military has to, put a, have, has to give Maduro a bad case of lead poisoning, if you know what I mean. Because hmm. those, those are the only ones he's allowing near him. And it's only certain individuals within the military that he's allowing near him. You know, your average, you know, your average grunt, uh, they're not going to get near him. And it's his higher echelon of the military, and they're the ones that have to get, finally realize, well, you know what? I got an uncle and an aunt. They're starving to death, or they need medicine, and they're not getting it. So, you know what? This has got to stop. And, well... They need to give them lead poisoning. Yeah, because you look at what's going on in the streets there, the hospitals that have absolutely no supplies, the maternity wards where they're stacking the babies in cardboard boxes because they have no place to, you know, no cribs, no food, no formula, no diapers. It, it's, it's, 
a horrific, horrific situation. People eating out of dumpsters. And when we do try to get aid in there, get food and supplies, of course, Maduro won't let it. He burns the supplies. He, he doesn't well, care if people is, live or die. Well, what I think is really funny is that you have these Americans that are turning around and saying that the United States are going to get involved militarily into Venezuela, where I got bad news for you. It's not going to happen. We are not. And I repeat, not going to send troops into Venezuela because of all the things that have been taken into consideration. I mean, I've sat here and I've thought about it and I've gone with the pros and the cons. And believe me, the cons really, really, really outweigh the pros. And it's not because, you know, I'm being, I'm living in this fantasy world. It's because the United States has done something recently that not many countries or, you know what, politicians in this country alone haven't done learn the lessons from the past. And it's a simple case that, no, if there's going to be military intervention in Venezuela, it has got to come from South American countries, such as Brazil, you know, such as Colombia, you know, other countries, you know, that are there, you know, or Argentina. I got bad news for you. No, the United States is not going to go and send troops into Venezuela because it would be a massacre. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm just curious how much ISIS being in control of the tri-border area, the lawlessness there, is helping Maduro keep himself in power and how much he relies on that. It's a good question to wonder what its effect is and why it's helping to prevent Colombia or Argentina from stepping in to, to overthrow Venezuela, Maduro. Well, you know what, his, his, he, recently you spoke about something, or you mentioned something in passing, and I spoke about this before in another show, and what I spoke about was how ISIS had managed to get their hands on passports, Syrian passports, Iraqi passports, Yemenis passports, you know, even Iranian passports. You know, ISIS has managed to get their hands on these passports, everything that's involved creating these passports. So instead of taking a passport and saying, okay, well, here's your new false passport, go to the United States. No, they're not going to do that. What they're going to do is either go to, let's say, Mexico or Nicaragua or, let's say, Venezuela or maybe even Canada. They're going to go to those countries. And then, by road, over land, then they travel, they sneak into the United States. And that's how they've, they've been doing it. Everybody's looking for members of ISIS to come on, you know, come flying across the ocean and landing in the United States by plane. No, that's not how they're doing it because the fact is that that's where, you know, Homeland Security is going to be watching the hardest. So they decide to sneak in by well, going you know, to other countries first. Well, yeah, it's funny because I was telling Maria that we've had a problem with the southern border for decades, going back to around 72. And I do recall reading an article, and I don't remember if it was Time or Newsweek, and it was somewhere around 1989 or 1990, where they did a huge article about OTMs, other than Mexicans, coming across the southern border. And at that time, back in 1989 or 90, I forget which year, because I, I searched the Internet trying to find the magazines, and they were talking about finding prayer rugs, Korans discarded at the border. And they talked about yeah. it at the time 
of radical Islamists blending into the South American countries because you know, their facial features are very similar. You learn how to speak Spanish by the drug lords. The drug gangs would work with them to teach them how to act, behave, and speak as if they were Hispanic and helping to smuggle them across. This has been happening for decades, and we have no idea how many sleeper cells we now have of radical Islamic terrorists here. Well, here's, here's, here's what makes me laugh. Do you remember when the president first put out his, his list of countries that are not going to be, of people not going to be allowed in? For a short time, yes. Iraq was one of those countries for a very short time. And the reason why Iraq was taken off that list, and here's something, again, that nobody speaks about. When the Iraqi government asked President Trump, why are we on this list? Well, according to our intel reports, you guys have had all many of your passport methods taken in by ISIS. The passports, the computers, the cameras, everything. The methods on how to make the passports, everything was taken from the cities that were captured by ISIS. So what did Iraq do? They changed their passports. They cha- I believe they changed the color or added something to the passport. So now, if this this object is not on there, that is a falsified passport. As soon as the Iraqis did that, which was like a matter of a couple of weeks, that's it. They were taken off the list. Well, well, CS, it has been so much fun having you on. It always is. I always have so much fun when you are on that because you are so knowledgeable on all these things. Plus, you have the inside knowledge on a lot of what is going on. Um, you do have your own podcast you have, which is called the Inside Reports, uh, Insider Reports. Uh, I have a link to it on the show page so people can check it out. Uh, what is going on with your book, The Varen Dossier? Have you gotten any further on that? Because last time we talked, you were still, you know, fucking around with it. Okay, I'm still working on the editing, but I've had to change the title because I was speaking to uh, some some of my colleagues, and they're like, oh, and they're like, dude, you do know that, you know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was originally called the book was originally called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and the reason why they changed it was because Vietnam was going on at the time, and the North Vietnamese were called Charlie. You know that, right? I'm like, yeah. How do you think people are going to react to the Varen dossier? I'm like, okay, yep, Baron Files it is. Change the title. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so now you're going to change the website. <laughs> yeah, i got to change the website. Well, I look forward it's to it. It's still the VarenDossier.com. It's still the VarenDossier.com. Until I change the title to The Varen Files. But, yeah, yeah bad timing <laughs> on my part. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, it has been so much fun having you with us. Uh, just You've got my phone number, so next time you want to come on, just give me a call, because I know you always have something going on. Not a problem, Annie. I would love to. And, you know, CS, great talking to you again. We're the brothers of the CS clan. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Brothers of the other mother. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. See you guys for Thank you so much, Annie. You're welcome. All right, Curtis. We've got our next victim up in the bullpen, uh, fellow law enforcement officer out of Santa Barbara, California. Let's welcome back Sergeant Mike McGraw. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? I'm, I'm good. Thank you, Annie. Good to be here again. How are you? 
Oh, it, it is it is great. A matter of fact, your book came in the mail. Sue sent it to me, uh, and it came in the mail today. And I love the inscription. It was really special, and uh, it touched me very nicely. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to uh, reading the whole entire thing because I was thumbing through it last night. And um, wow, is all I can say. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it took about three years in the making. And um you know it's it's not a it's not a long book. Uh, <laughs> I wanted people to pick it up and be able to, to read it and not be intimidated by it, but it sure has a lot of messages in there. And um, you know, it was it was started in in prayer. I'm a man of faith, so I, I prayed a lot about it and I I, uh, I just prayed about what, what should be in there and, and um it, it captures a lot. It captures a lot of things that happened in my career and in my personal life and, and also in my spiritual life as well. So it, it's been, uh, you know, um, um, well, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I've known a lot of uh, fellow cops that I've worked with who like you didn't have faith. Uh, and it's funny because I never lost mine. I just lost faith in the Catholic church. Uh, so for me, it was just different. I, I, never stopped looking uh, for God in just various places. And throughout my career and throughout my entire life, always find him in the most unusual places. But I, I found that as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, a lot of ways we are more social worker than we are law enforcement. And I think that is where faith in certain cops is more prominent because they uh, they would approach a situation uh, in a different manner. Yeah, you're right. It changed everything for me. Uh, I was I was a cop for 31 years. First 20 years, I didn't have I didn't have faith. I think I I saw God's grace. Uh, I didn't know what it was that I was looking at when I saw it. But as you well know, every time you go into a, a horrible situation, you would always see something positive and and something powerful that would follow it up, whether it was uh, the strength of a victim and and um, being able to stand up and confront their accusers or the community coming around a disaster, whatever it was, it was always there. And I think that's what kept us coming back. Uh, later on, when um, I became a man of faith and gave my life to the Lord, it, it changed everything for me, but it also changed the way I policed things. It, it, it gave me a different outlook on on why I was there um, during the midst of, of other people's tragedies, because as you all know, when we when we show up, um, it's, people are not having a good day, and uh, they're there probably in the worst time of their life, and so they need that special um, attention and that empathy and that care that um, that that's provided to them, and and I I know that, and you know this, but um, you know that. There's there's just people that are called to this profession that that have that that um, that have that heart that want to help people that that want to be there and, and bring that comfort and bring that calm to chaos um, and that's what I did for a lot of years uh, but but it also uh, just gave me a lot of added um, support when I went in in there and just had that faith to to know that God had put me in that situation for a very specific reason. And usually it was to, 
to share a part of my life story and, and part of my testimony with the people, whether it be a loss of a loved one or, or a personal battle that I had experienced. And um, it was just, it was, it was very powerful. So I have to say the last 10 years of my career uh, were even more significant than the first uh, 20, just because of the way I was looking at the job and, and what I was there to do. Well, it, it's funny because I always got a kick out of it because you, you respond to a call, you handle it, whatever you do, um, and then you, you forget about it. You know, you go on to the next call or the next patrol or post or whatever you have going on. You push it out of your mind. But what I always got a kick out of was that somewhere down the road, someone I had interacted with would walk up and approach me and they would say, thank you. And you, you would try to look at the person like, all right, where do I know you from and how did I interact with you? And then they would tell you the story. And it always gave me a certain wonderful feeling inside knowing that I was placed in that spot at that time to help this individual. And now they are doing so much better today because of whatever happened between the two of us. Yeah, it's, uh, it really is amazing. So sometimes we don't know the impact that we have in people's lives. And like you said, it was a day-to-day thing for us to go from call to call. But, um, but, the, the, but the other person, we have, have to remember that they'll never forget us. You know, we, we may have contacted thousands and tens of thousands of people in our career and not remember uh, you know, most of them, but uh, but but they don't forget us, and they don't forget how we interact with them either. And that's why it's you know such a it was such an important career. And and um and then as I um as I I saw those thank yous you know in the first twenty years just just like you did you know you'd see people that would uh, that you'd even arrest you know that would come up and say hey thank you for for being there that day and and, and stopping me on my path of destruction and. And you saved my life, and I heard that over and over again with people that um, um, were trapped in drug addictions or whatever it may be, and they came up, and they, or they'd even write you a letter. So you knew the power of that, but um, I even, um, to realize for me uh, in the last, the last portion of my career, just to realize that when I was going in uh, with that power, the power of my testimony and and um uh, just that heart that had been molded because of all the things that I'd been through, uh, and and to know that that's what I was there to offer up to those people that were in need, it, it really made the job uh, a lot more rewarding, and it made it um, more fulfilling every day as, as as I went home. To know that yeah, I did make a difference, even though it may not have been. You know, saving somebody from a burning building or something that day. But if you did make a, a difference um, for somebody uh, in, a, in a personal crisis, you know that that was a win for the day. And and I was just uh, just very grateful for all that. It's it's funny you mentioned burning building because it reminded me of something that happened. And I was flown into another command, and I'm walking the footpost. Uh, and the building happened to have been, yes, on fire. So I'm trying to get a hold of Central. I'm a rookie. I'm straight out of the police academy. And Central will not let me you know, call in. They kept the thing, stand by, stand by. Now, I'm running across the street towards the burning building. And I did. I said, all right, she's not going to listen to me. I'm 
talking calm. She thinks there's nothing wrong here. So I just turned around and keyed the mic and go, Central, fire, a big fire. Guess <laughs> what? I got her attention. Yeah. And it was the only yeah. way. And I swear the guys in my unit know who I am, know how calm and cool I am. And they were cracking up. They made fun of me for like about two weeks afterwards. But I get to the building. There's an elderly man who's having a hard time coming down the stairs, and I'm assisting him coming down the stairs. Meanwhile, I'm knocking on doors, getting people out of the apartments and down the stairs. It turns out a couple of months later, my husband, at the time I was married to Maureen, had got stationed in Massachusetts. So I'm driving up the Connecticut Turnpike, heading up to meet him, and I get pulled over by a trooper. And it turns out that someone tried to rip off one of my side view mirrors, and it was kind of like dangling. And I couldn't get it attached properly. So he stopped and he was helping me put it back on. And he goes, you know, my dad had an interaction with a female cop in Brooklyn just a couple of weeks back. His building was on fire. And I said, you're talking oh. about such and such address? He goes, yeah. I said, I was the only female cop there. It was his father I helped out. Talk about God wow. putting you wow. in the right place at the right time. And that trooper yeah. stayed by my side until we got that near firmly attached. <laughs> Otherwise, I probably would have had a ticket. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. That is, and he, he he works those miracles. We see him; they're they're so personal too. When you see him, you know you, you realize, wow, that's that's a divine appointment that he had. But, uh, I, um, uh, I I I recognize that. Um, <laughs> The, the story and, and um, just the excitement of, of being a cop. And as we as we can tell these stories, I know that we could probably go on for hours and hours and hours as we talk about it because it just brings up so many different uh, different memories. Um, it's it's exciting to hear what you did as, in a big city as a big city cop. Uh, we never had we had structure fires that, that in in California, but our our buildings are uh, in Santa Barbara. They're only about uh, one or two stories at the most. So I'd, I'd be curious to see how, how how big that building was that you had to go into. Those are, those are some serious uh, fires. That one, I think was, that one I think was eight stories. It wasn't that tall an apartment building, you know, for the neighborhood, but it was, you know, I think that was eight or 10 stories, not exactly sure. But I have been in ones that are like 30 some odd stories and chasing a guy floor down is no fun. <laughs> or going the other way up oh. is no fun. Uh, but yeah, we probably could talk for hours about stories. But I, I noticed in the book, um, you had were at such a low point in the book. Uh, your son was extremely ill. Uh, you were going through a lot of other things. You were in the homicide squad, I believe, at that point, and you tattooed 187 onto yourself. Now, tell us about that, because as I read it, I'm going, oh my god, that had been like at the rock bottom. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, I was in a place where um, you know I didn't know the Lord. I was dealing with just everything that um, that we deal with as cops, and, and I was dealing uh, in, in homicide. So we we dealt with death a lot, and I was uh, facing it every day as we went to work. I'd have to go to you know every suicide call, every um, suspicious death call, and then the homicides as well. And and the toll that that takes on a first responder or a cop is just you know people don't really understand that to to see that every day and, and to live in that and 
you know, I realized that uh, it was right after I actually had lost the, the second marriage is, is when that happened. But I, I had, I had thought about, you know, how much death had scarred my, my inside. You know, I felt like I was just so wounded by that. And so, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, why not get a tattoo? And at the time, it was, you know, it was a tattoo of a Grim Reaper, and they put 187 on there, which is the code for homicide. And, uh, you know, that was my mindset. And so I was actually, you know, looking back on it, I was like in disagreement with the spirit of death. And that was just, that's the lie that the enemy has uh, over us. And, and uh, you know, what's so significant about that and why I put that in the book is because it was later on, after I received Jesus, um, I uh, realized that death had been defeated. And, you know, that death was not something that that I needed to um, to fear. It wasn't something that I needed to be in agreement with. It was um, it was something that had been defeated by our, by our God and that he wanted, wants us to have an eternal life. And so uh, when my younger son died, uh, I, I, uh, I was given some supernatural miracles by God. And he, he showed me that my son was with with him, and I knew uh, from that minute uh, on that you know there was nothing that I had to fear about death. You know that's 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 the curse that the enemy put on us, um, but God had broken that curse and he's, and he's defeated that. And so I know that uh, that story isn't over. I'm going to see my son again, um, but I'm still here to do. Um, what it is that God's plan for my destiny. It's to still go out and do those, um, go to those calls, be in those places that he puts us in. And, and, and I know that, um, that, you know, for me, it's eternal life. And, and so that's why I, I put that in the book because I just, um, I needed to put the contrast of where I was before I was a believer and where I am now, because it's just so much different. And, you know, I was just really, that's, that's the spiral that I was going to in, in, in that agreement. But I've renounced that and there's scripture that just talks about, you know, um, death being defeated and death where you're stinking because it doesn't have that sting on me that, that it used to. And when my son was you know, first diagnosed, I wasn't a believer. Uh, he was 12 years old. He got diagnosed with bone cancer and he lost his left leg and he was going through chemo and, and uh, it was something that, you know, every day I woke up fearing. And it was something every day that, you know, I was just in uh, pure terror of losing my son. But later on, um, as God walked me through the process and it was halfway through his journey that I came to the Lord, that I realized that, that there was hope. Because uh, with death comes uh, an agreement with that comes hopelessness. You know that there's no hope there, and you know with with God and with uh, with His peace, His comfort, and His eternal life that He offers us, that's hope. You know we we get to experience heaven, we get to experience all the blessings that He wants us to experience for eternity and, and eternal life. So He not only wants us to have life, He wants us to experience eternal life. So I I um, I just felt that was. That was just one of the things that I, that I put in the book. And, and I, I wish I would have never got that tattoo now. It's, you know, uh, but I'm, I just kind of, uh, uh, I've, I've renounced 
basically just the, the bloodletting and the, and the curse that I put on myself. It was basically a self curse, is what I was doing. But I renounced that and just received God's goodness and His blessings over that now. You know, it, it, it's so easy for someone in law enforcement or you know any of these first responders you know, to end up feeling hopeless, helpless, despondent, because you see so much day in and day out, and you see the worst of people. And not only that, you know, in today's day and age, with the vitriol coming from different political environments, the attacks on first responders, I mean, we just had another officer killed yesterday by an illegal immigrant. We had an ICE agent that lost his finger because an illegal alien uh, had bit his finger off while he was trying to arrest him. The attacks on us uh, can be really leaving you rather despondent. And some of them, some of the cops will end up having the us versus them mentality. And that's a very difficult thing to not embrace. For some reason, there always is, well, you'll never understand because you'll never understand what it's like to be a cop. And the civilian goes, oh, you're just here to, to control me. You're just here to put your will over me. You're the you're the bully. You're the big boy. And the, the us versus them mentality is a real hard stepping stone. Yeah, it is. It's a dangerous, it's another trap, I think. You know, this is something that um, that's used to try to separate us. But as I as I kind of broke out of that myself, um, because I was there you know, for a while, because you you do you deal with the worst situations, and then you know with shift work and uh, you know you work during the nights, you have uh, days off that are in the middle of the week, so you really don't get to have um, you know social time with people that have normal schedules. So you start to hang out with, with cops and, and you start to talk about, you know, the things that you experience and maybe the attacks and everything else. And so it can become a very narrow place. And I think, um, you know, to, to be able to um, look at it from a broader picture um, and see that, you know, we, we really need to know that we don't deal with all of society. Um, we deal with just part of them. Um, most of, most of, the people support us. They really appreciate what we do out there. Uh, you don't always hear that because we never get the thing. It's a thankless job a lot of times. We don't get those thank yous. When we do, as you well know, it's, it's great to hear hear from that. But um, but I think you know just be just making that extra effort and being part of that community uh, really breaks the ice. And so I, I think that there's. I think we talked about community policing earlier on. Um, last time we talked, but that's a big step in, in uh, going out and being part of the community, um, letting people know who we are and us being able to see how supportive and, and wonderful that our community is that we protect. I, I've, um, you know, been asked it on a couple other shows just about the, the media attacks that, that, you know, sometimes we experience, you know, not all the media attacks us. Um, sometimes we do get hits, and those hits um, uh, can portray law enforcement in a negative light. But I, I just uh, counter by saying that, you know, the people that I've worked with um, are people of courage and character. They go out, they do a job where they protect uh, folks that they don't even know. They put themselves in harm's way for them. They, they, uh, they risk their life for them. 
Um, and, and they do extraordinary, extraordinary things every day. So for every use of force that you uh, may see happen, there were thousands of times where use of force could have been used, but it wasn't used. And there was several times in my career where deadly force, I could have used deadly force in the situation, but uh, fortunately it didn't have to work out that way. So, you know, I know that every day, um, you know, there's tens of thousands of those type of incidents that are happening. And for the community um, to be able to see that kind of face for law enforcement is that's, you know, that's my prayer. Um, uh, and, and they're not really ever going to see it because it's not a newsworthy event, right? Hey, we did a good job. Uh, sometimes it gets on the news, but I think it does um, get promoted as police and the community work together and you have that partnership because then they realize, hey, you know, there are people too. They do do uh, good jobs and they do care about, you know, um, uh, the community. So it, it, it works both ways, but, but it, but it's a partnership and, and it, and it, you know, you can see communities where there isn't. And, um, you know, I, I, I just feel like that's, um, that's just, it, it can be a volatile situation sometimes, you know, and this one incident can spark something pretty big that can happen. So to stay in front of that's really important. And, and I think the trend of law enforcement right now is, is to try to stay in front of that, to, to you know, let people know, hey, this is what we do, this is why we do it, so that um, they aren't affected by you know, daily negative things that they see on TV. They, they can still see positive messaging out there as well. Yeah, well, one of the things I loved doing is if I was assigned to a specific sector uh, or a specific flip post, it's knocking on the doors of the different businesses, the different stores and everything, introducing yourself in there, letting them know, hey, you know, I'll be up and down here. You know, if you need anything, I'll be just nearby. You're letting them know. And I had like a little trick I had. I would always carry uh, a crossword puzzle with me, usually the New York Times crossword puzzle. I'd always have it in my pocket. And as I'm talking to someone, whether I'm in a grocery store or somewhere else, I'd pull it out and as I'm talking to them, I'm being filling out the crossword puzzle. You'd be amazed how many times they would try to help me with the crossword puzzle and says, wait a minute, this is English. This is not in Spanish. But you, you build yeah. up a rapport to the point where they thought that at one point I was in trouble. Someone said that they saw a female cop running down the street. And, of course, everyone was calling in saying, no, she's right here. She's right here. How much they are willing to work with you if you are willing to work with them. And uh, it it is important that the community and the police have a a good interaction, that they know each other, you know, know which businesses are there, know who the owners are, you know, stop and say hi, you know, introduce yourself. Hey, you know, I'm on this sector for the next several months, you know, if you need me, you know, I'm so-and-so. Here's my cell phone number, whatever it is. Uh, and that is very, very important. Yeah, it is. It's it's extremely important. To me, that was the biggest thing that you could do is, was to get out of your car and, and go be part of that community, let them know that you're there, why you're there, um, and, and and make that contact because it's, it's there's a barrier when you're driving around in a police car. People, you know, they might wave at you, but if you get out and you approach them and you talk with them, you know, it just it takes away that barrier and and it really humanizes the whole experience for them. And I think um, 
you know, just uh, the shifts and, you know, you and I have seen shifts in police work and, and how it happens. And, and I know for a while there was uh, there was evidence-based policing, which relied more on statistics and, you know, writing tickets or doing this or doing that, you know, and that's how they were going to clean things up. But, but really, you're right. Uh, that doesn't really matter. You know, you can write as many tickets as you want. That's usually not going to get the community on your side. Um, there is a reason to do that. In some cases, you have to, you know, there's a reason for, for traffic uh, safety and, and, and to, to minimize the risk to citizens on the road. But the the focus needs to be on that relationship. And, um, and I think that's where I see the pendulum swinging. At least that's where it was when I was... Um, just retired that it was going back to, to, Hey, let's, let's get out let's be part of the community. Let's, let's, uh, let's worry about the conversation more than, than what our numbers look like, you know, for a report to the mayor or something like that. So, so it's been, um, it's been encouraging. Sergeant. Yeah. Law enforcement has taken a hit, um, over the, the last eight years. Um, and, that's impacted their recruiting. Do you see this um, changing a little under the Trump administration? People, you know, going back into law enforcement. Uh, I I still think it's difficult right now um, for a lot of different reasons, but, um, you know, law enforcement was under the microscope for the last, you know, the last decade, there's been a lot of negative press that's come out um, towards law enforcement. So it's made the job, not so appealing, uh, maybe to the public, uh, that it should be. Um, there's, uh, you know, when the job market gets better, um, people with higher education, uh, will go and get a different job than to be a cop. Sometimes when the job market isn't so, so good, um, they'll look at, uh, you know, people that uh, might have a degree or something, they, they would say, okay, well, there's not a lot of jobs out there. So to look at a job that, that could have um, a decent pay and you're never going to be rich being a cop, but you are going to have insurance and you are going to have a, a retirement at the end of it. And so that's, for me, that's what was appealing. And I think right now, uh, uh, as, as there's more jobs that are open, it's more competitive to try to get the good people and you don't ever want to lower your standards uh, in law enforcement. You can never do that to fill positions because that just brings in a whole nother set of problems. So you still want to get the very uh, cream of the crop doing that job because it's so important. Uh, but to remain competitive, you know, there's challenges in that because, you know, police, uh, police officers, they aren't cheap. Uh, you know, they do cost money. And out in California, it's, you know, it can be um, very expensive too as well. But, um, what about, what but about I, law enforcement officers who are brought up on false charges or bogus charges of abuse and and, and now this insidious um, um, attempt by a lot of people to, to, to shoot, you know, officers in the head? Aren't those all deterrents for people to go into law enforcement? Yeah, they are. Uh, you are seeing, uh, you know, because of politics, you know, you will see different prosecutors in different um, areas throughout the country that, that may take on cases that they wouldn't have before just because of political 
political pressure, so they may uh, prosecute you know an officer for something that wouldn't have been prosecuted maybe five or ten years ago. Uh, and the the outcome is that you know the officers can still get acquitted, but they had to go through all of that. They had to go through the trial. They had to go through the negative press and just the personal um, tragedy in their life to experience that. Um, but uh, the violence towards officers uh, that's uh, that's that's a deterrent. I'm sure it takes a special uh, person to want to say, "Hey, I'm going to go out there and." and put my life on the line for a community. It's not always about, um, it's not always about a paycheck. There, there has to be a deeper meaning. There's something spiritual just about being a cop because there's something bigger than yourself that, that you're doing when you enter that job. And it's not just a paycheck. Um, you're, you're representing, um, the public trust and, uh, and you're protecting those who can't protect themselves. And, and you're 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 just you know, and you're being a social worker, and you're being you know, you're you're just doing so many things that um, that are so important. But I but I I just uh, I think that it's not getting easier to recruit officers right now. Um, I have to say that uh, for me it was a really rewarding job, uh, but over the 30 years, uh, it's it's changed. It's gotten gotten more difficult probably so the new the new folks are facing some more challenges than, than i probably had to face uh, back 30 years ago so it's probably not as appealing as it was back then well you know uh, there's a couple of things that you, you touched on you and curtis you know about the prosecutions of police officers for something that 10 years ago would have been a minor little slap on the wrist um the demoralization of these cops and here you're in a stressful situation, which is made worse by a prosecution or whatever. And then there's, if you even do get acquitted, there's still the stigmatism that follows you around for the rest of your career. There will always be that. What if there will always be that red tab on your folder on your personnel folder, it will follow you for the rest of your career and may cost you a promotion. It may cost you a, a nice transfer it could cost you in countless ways. Or you may end up with the boss above you that thinks that you're you're bad to the bone and will give you the hardest time for the rest of your career. That stigmatism alone would be enough to make a lot of people quit. And I've seen it happen. Sure. Yeah, it it, it can happen. Um, you know, and that's I think that's one of the bigger stresses of being in law enforcement is that you are in, in the public eye, so um, you are held to a higher standard than everybody else. You will be held to a higher standard than the rest of the country, and it absolutely is going to happen. And so you are not going to have the freedoms that everybody else has in the country, but you are going to protect those freedoms for everybody else. Uh, you're you're not going to be afforded the rights that everybody else has, um, but you're going to protect those for everybody else. And and um, and so that can be a stress, you know, uh, it, it's, it's something that, uh, I tried not to, you know, I, when I went out on patrol, I just set that aside and said, well, I'm here to do what I'm here to do. And, uh, you know, I had, I had to go through, um, uh, the federal, I went through a federal, uh, 
trial one time, and that was absolutely, you know, nothing happened. And I knew nothing happened because nothing happened at the time. It was an excessive force case. But um, but we were acquitted within 45 minutes. The jury said, yeah, send these guys home. Nothing happened. But, but it was, um, you know, to go through that was just a miserable experience. Um, but that's not what I gauged my uh, policing on. I just felt like, okay, you know, God's going to – going to watch after us you know no matter what happens you know the lies the accusations because they are going to come but if we just you know if i just relied on you know god's protection in those situations it it would work itself out and and it did um but but you're right it can some people it just you know that they just can't get over it and and it ruins careers um cops can be um you know it's, it's a job with a high turnover rate um, yeah, uh, a lot of folks, you know, I, I don't know how many in my academy made it the 30 years, but I, I know that my academy class, probably a fraction, uh, probably retired at the same time that I did. So, so I, so I do know that it, it has a high, it has a high attrition rate. That's for sure. Cause it takes its toll on people. And, you know, one of the things that I uh, was really blessed to be able to be involved in was, um, uh, a program that we started up over here and I'm hoping that and, and I'm watching what is happening actually right now, but uh, it deals with uh, the trauma that uh, first responders face, particularly cops and firefighters. But uh, it's allowing for these kind of discussions that we're having right now uh, and uh, training and uh, just uh, things to look out for um to be prepared for if you do get hit with something like this and how to deal with it, you know, and, and where do you, where do you go um, uh, when these things, when you're faced with this kind of issue and, and how do you keep yourself from being isolated and, and not involved in the community? And, and so there are ways to do that. Um, there's some very smart people out there that, that um, provide instruction and training on that. And so uh, uh, I was able to be, um, part of this program that we have out locally here it's called at ease and um and we've been helping a, a, an awful lot of um, police officers and firefighters in, in our local area and and the neat part about it is that they're using it you know before people would never think about you know going and talking to a counselor or going and getting help for for some type of situation but now the conversation is is hey you know what i think you know that call got to me um, you know, when you had to take a dead child out of a mother's hands or, you know, you saw something at a car crash or a homicide or whatever it may be, and you realize those stresses, they're starting to pile up on you. And, and when you start to realize the effects at home or whatever it may be, we're starting to have programs now that um, people can go and say, okay, hey, look, I'm, I'm getting these signs. What do I do with this? Instead of just letting it all go to a place of just um, – self-destruction basically because because that's what um that's what can happen in that, in that career and that's where i was headed and i write about it in the book and i write about um, where i was going but but how i got out of it you know, and that, that was the lord for me it was the lord it was god it was, that's who saved me well you know you, 
you've touched on something very, very important because if you are a police officer and you go to a counselor within the department or oftentimes even just a chaplain within the department, they mark your folder that you went to see such and such a counselor or such and such a chaplain. And then comes the question of why are you there? What is going on? Do we need to send you to psych services? Again, another huge mark in your personnel folder that can affect promotions, transfers, advancements into any special unit. Um, have an independent outside uh, asset, such as what you have with the at ease program, it allows then that first responder to go and not have something marked in their folder, to sit down with someone who actually understands, who's been there and who's done that. And I think that is something I think a lot of departments should be really honestly looking into. Matter of fact, I may ask you about that a little bit later uh, off, off the air, off the show, because I don't know if they have something for our local sheriffs here, because the local sheriff got himself into a little bit of a drunken ball, a brawl and is no longer on the department. And see, alcoholism is, is a huge problem because you're dealing with the sure. stress, and if you can't talk to someone, what are you going to do? You're going to go out to a bar and you're going to drink, and you're going to drown your sorrows. Then you go home and you get into a fight with your family. And these are things that you know you have to re- handle as a first responder. Now here you are in a situation that, like this gentleman had with a barroom brawl, and his fellow officers are the ones that had to respond and to restrain him. And he, he doesn't remember what happened, but he had to resign. So you know, having outside access to counseling, to spiritual healing is really important. Yeah, it is, because we want to stay in front of those situations, you know, and, and that's – and that's um, and that's what that's what's happening now. That's the trend. And that's you know it's, it's what we what we've created out here is, is it's a really neat um, model because it it it's through the police foundation, which is separate from the department. So it's it's funded through uh, donations and and uh, uh, the community supports us, which is awesome. And then the cops and firefighters really appreciate it because they see that support. Um, but because it is separate from the city or the county or wherever the, the first responder works, it's completely confidential. There's no paper trail. Uh, they can get the help. It's trusted. And uh, and we stay in front of those type of incidents, you know, so we don't have that um, kind of meltdown. And we don't have to have people turn into uh, negative, you know, destructive behavior to deal with uh, the pressures that are put on them daily because it's really that's, that's what you see is when somebody starts drinking a lot and I had to, I went through that myself, you know, that's, it's just a sign of something deeper that's going on. And, and it's, you know, it's the traumas that we carry. Sometimes there are our own, but for first responders, there are our own plus everybody else's. And, you know, I I know that um, we're, we're people too. And we need to have that outlet and that help. Um, But we also, need to be able to have the humility to to say, yeah, you know, um, I'll receive that and, and, and to step forward. But, you know, it just keeps everybody healthy. And I think the conversations really here, you know, in our community here has gone tri-counties wide now. It's starting to spread even bigger. Uh, the, the, the conversation is that people are looking out after each other too. And that's really neat because you can look at your partner and say, Hey, you know what? 
instead of saying, hey, you've got a broken arm, uh, you can say, hey, let's go to the emergency room and um, get that fixed. So you can do the same thing with emotional injuries, you know, because that's what it is. It's uh, trauma is uh, the, the, the things that happen to us emotionally like that. They're actually, they're, it's, it's a trauma. It's a trauma that happened to the brain. It's kind of a brain injury that happens. And most people don't experience that, you know, because most people aren't exposed to what we've been exposed to. So, so I'm really, uh, really excited to see how the Lord's been working with that. You know, he's had his hand on that and just, just the success, um, testimonies that are coming out of it. It's been really, really amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you write about in your book that it's a, a voyage you travel, your voyage into faith. It's not something that happens overnight. And I think a lot of people expect it to happen overnight. You don't suddenly, within you know, a matter of hours, suddenly have faith. Um, you have to go through a series of trials and tribulations before you realize where your faith is based. And I tell the story where my husband was in the hospital and I almost lost him three times. And uh, on that final day, the doctor told me that, you know, by the time you get back, he may not be with us. And here I am driving home to feed the cat, crying my eyes out. I had a prayer shawl wrapped around my shoulders, and I kept on thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I had that come to moment where I said, why am I saying, what am I doing? Why aren't I instead saying, what is his will? And I'll accept it. And once I did that, the power and the feeling that I felt at that moment was so overwhelming. I knew I had the right answer at that point. And when I got back to the hospital, I truly believed that by the time I got back there, it would have been his last breath. He was sitting up in the bed laughing, and the doctor came over to me crying and hugging me, saying she didn't think he could still be alive at that moment. You know, it's, it's how you come to your faith when you realize where your journey is taking you. And this is what you write about in the book, finally coming to that moment of faith. Yeah, it was um, it was not an easy road to get there, uh, but I, you know, God is He's a loving God, and and love isn't something that you force on anybody. So He gave us free will, and you know, for a lot of years, um, I used free will to go the wrong direction and thought I could control everything. But it was finally when I had reached that place of um, I knew I wasn't in control. I knew I couldn't control that situation, just like you couldn't with your husband. And and, you, and I was um, um, met by the Lord, and, and he just gave me that place to offer, um, where I could offer up those, those burdens and those stresses. And, um, you know, I... I just said, I need that. I need that in my life. I need to have that comfort. I need to not carry the things I've been carrying anymore and not, you know, not trying to, to do what I've been doing. And, and God does. And he does it so perfectly. You know, he runs the universe very well. <laughs> so he can, he can work in our lives when we let him do that in, in amazing ways. And we don't have to change. You know, some people think, well, I'm not good enough for the Lord. You know, well, that's the enemy. That's the enemy whispering in, in our ears. But he meets us right where we are. And so he just met me on that day. He just met me right where I was. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll consider this. And, and, you know, this is such 
the supernatural, you know, miracle that had happened that day that I, you know, decided to give my life to the Lord. And I, I knew that there was really no other place, and 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 it was my choice to do that. So I did, and then uh, and then I just prayed for more faith because faith is something that that for me it was just like I, I wanted more of it. I wanted to have the faith that that could move the mountains, you know, that mustard seed that can 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 move the mountains. So it just grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And as I asked, prayed for more faith, more faith came. And, and God's just, you know, when we're praying, just like you said, in line with his will, you know, our prayers get answered. And, you know, it, it just completely you know, it did a transformation for me. You know, at the, at the start, I, I think it was about, it was about me. It was about, hey, God, help me out of this. Or, hey, God, I'm hurting here. Or, I'm, you know, um, I need help here. And he does do that. Um, but when I realized it was about service to him and, and his kingdom and just um, offering up, you know, all the things that he was doing in my life uh, to him and to others, that's where the joy started to come in for me. And that's where my faith even grew at a at a bigger level. So when we see God move, uh, it, it 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 increases our faith. And God gives us all miracles. He gives us all you know little miracles that can be. You know, we know they're from Him. And they're very personal. And we may tell somebody else about it, and they go, "Oh yeah, well that's weird." But we knew that hey, the Lord touched us. You know, and that day that praying about your husband he came back and he was up breathing you know you knew that was a miracle and you knew God touched your life at that point same thing same thing for me and uh I just I needed a place to be able to deal with all the all the things that I'd been hit with and um you know kind of the mess that I made in my own life but but I I can sure tell you I'm, I'm so grateful now to be where I am and, and have the transformation that that's happened and and just to be able to um to walk and 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 you know that um, that you know I may be weak in the flesh, but I'm strong in the spirit, and and I know that um, that God can carry me through uh, any trial that, that comes my way. Not that they don't hurt sometimes when they come, but I but I still know that 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 His plan is to is to prosper us, it's to give us hope in the future, not to harm us. And, and everything He tells us in His Word is a promise. It never comes back void. But I've I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in, in other people's lives, and, and I and I just um, I love to you know experience that. And I love to to share what he's done in my life. Um, we can't always tell we can't always tell other people what what to do, but we can share our our own stories. You know, there there are testimonies. And nobody can take that away from us. You know. Um, because that's 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 um, it's, it's a very powerful thing to have. We all have them. I have one. It's not more important than anybody else's. But um, but God called me to to write it down in, in this book. That's why I did it. I, I gave my um, testimony at a prayer breakfast one year, and, and a group of people asked me to put it down on a book because they thought that it could touch uh, more people. And and uh, so I prayed about it and. And that's that's really why I wrote it. It wasn't for you know <laughs> to sell books or to do anything more than just to just to offer that um, that testimony of hope that uh, God uh, gave me and, and transformation and because and, uh, I know I'm not the only person going through these 
things, obviously. And then the feedback's been pretty powerful. Um, just uh, the people that have been reading the book, it just it's, it's been it's been answered prayers. Um, and God's touching them, um, and, and that's what He does with our testimonies. It's it's, it's amazing. So I've been uh, it's been a well, it's been an amazing journey. Yeah. Well, the book is called A Higher Call to Duty, The Unimaginable True Life Story of Sergeant Mike McGrew. Now, you have it as told to Sarah Bush. Uh, how did you hook up with Sarah, and how did you get her to help you write this book? That's uh, So you could write a book about this. I, uh, I gave my testimony. <laughs> uh, a, group of folks, yeah, a group of folks asked me to, to write the book. Um, I, I said... Uh, at first I said, well, I don't think I need to write a book. And I said, yes, you do. So I said, let me pray about it. So I did. Uh, and when I got back to him, I said, okay, I'll do it. And then I got diagnosed with cancer. And so I knew I'd have to take about um, some time off. And I thought, well, this this is probably the time God wants me to write this book in the hospital. So I'd uh, gone through the surgery at colon cancer. And it was like, on, it went to my lymph nodes and everything else. So they had to do a real big surgery. Um, so they, uh, uh, I was sitting in the hospital just waiting to, for the chemo and uh, waiting to, to write this book. You know, I had the computer on my lap and nothing was coming to me. And I can usually write. And I'm thinking, wow, this is weird. So then the next thing I know, the newspaper in town called me, the main editor, and he said, hey, we want to do a story on the cancer. And I'm like, well, why would you want to do a story on the cancer? And I'm like one in about, you know, several million people that's had to go through this. And he said, no, it's a story. You know, you've been, you know, it's kind of a, because of my career at the, in this community, a lot of people knew my, my career and, and uh, knew, knew a lot about me. So they, um, he said, you know, let us do a story. So I said, well, let me get back to you. And so I so I prayed about it, and I, I called him back, and I said, um, you know, I'll, I'll do the story uh, if you let me talk about what God's doing in my life during this battle. And uh, the editor said, sure, we'll, we'll let you do that. So they assigned Sarah Bush. She was a reporter, and uh, she'd been a, a television reporter, and then she was working for the newspaper at the time. And uh, she gets to sign the story. And uh, Sarah had had a journey where she grew up as a Christian. And she went to a Christian college. And, uh, but then she started to see some hypocrisy in the church. And uh, it turned her off. And she says, you know, I'm out. You know, and she walked away. She walked away from the church. And she was really struggling with her faith at that time with God. But she gets to sign my story. And, you know, as she was... <laughs> Listening to my story, you could just see her just going through her own personal struggle and just kind of shaking her head and going, why did I get assigned this? And, and uh, so she wrote the story, and uh, it was on the front page of the newspaper, and it was proclaiming Jesus Christ and uh, what uh, God had done in my life. And, uh, it was really amazing. I couldn't believe that, you know, that that was in the newspaper. So I, uh, and it had everything in there that I, that I felt covered uh, that, that battle. So, but as I read it, I, you know, the Lord spoke to me to, she's the one. She's supposed to write this book. So I called her up and I asked her if she'd be willing to write the book. And she said, 
she was thinking about writing one that she would do it. So we met for for the next um, couple of years. Every every week we'd meet and uh, scroll the cop stories and you know, my personal life. And, and, uh, and then God started to bring in people to help finance and finance the book. And you know, uh, um, uh, Michael Hammer is uh, he's uh, there to the Arm and Hammer Foundation. Um, really special guy in my life, and uh, you know he. Wanted to help get this word out. He, he knew my story, and he'd been working with me on the Ad Age program as well. So, um, so it just all started to come together, and uh, you know it was just miracle after miracle. And so here it is today, and it's out. And the timing of it was something that I didn't. I thought I thought it'd be a little bit earlier, but it was all God's timing. And I just see now how it's working. You know, on his time, so, so it's just it's been it's been a really uh, uh, awesome experience. There's been no stress in it because you know, I've just been praying about it, and the next step happens. That's, that's what's going on. Well, it is a fascinating story, and people can find it at SergeantMikeMcGrew.com. Uh, we're down to our last uh, six minutes in the show, and it's always fun to have you on, Mike. It is it is a fascinating book. You know, I got most of the stories when I interviewed you the first time, but now to read everything all in one in one spot, it's I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, I was thumbing through it last night, picking out different chapters to talk to you about, and uh, thank you for the uh, dedication you put in the front to me. Um, so again, uh, good luck with the at ease. And I want to talk to you about that, maybe offer something like that to our local sheriff department here. Uh, so something like what happened this past week doesn't happen to another deputy sheriff. Um, every single life that we help to save is, is a gift to God. Uh, but I want to thank yes, you again for joining us, Mike. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Thank you for all you do. I appreciate it. Take care. Sorry. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. Okay. All right. Sergeant Mike. All right. com. Check it out. It's called A Higher Call to Duty. Curtis, we've got like about five minutes left, and uh, we've got two great guests coming up next Friday. And both are authors. Oh. We were supposed to have uh, Dr. Wilfred Riley on. He wrote the book uh, Hate Crime Hoax. And whatever the, the, the screw-up was, you know, we got it all settled out, so he's coming back on this coming oh, Friday. Coming. So we're going to be talking about hate crime hoax with Dr. Wilfred Riley. Uh, and then we also have a new book out called Desert Fox about um, Erwin uh, Rommel, the Desert Fox from World, Rommel. World War II. Uh, okay. uh, very, very, very fascinating read. If anyone doesn't remember who Rommel was, Rommel was one of the generals that tried to assassinate uh, Hitler, Adolf Hitler, Hitler in World War II. He ended up, yeah, he ended up committing suicide in order to prevent his family from being persecuted, arrested, and executed. And he took a way out of honor, you can say, uh, just to protect the rest of his family. So I'm in the middle of reading. Yeah, he also. And we'll have both authors on Friday. Yeah. He also went up against George Patton in Africa. That battle. Yeah, so it's going to be uh, fascinating to have these two authors on, and with all the hate crime hoaxes that are going on out there, oh boy, well, we can have tons to talk with uh, with Dr. Riley, uh, Jesse Smollett. Uh, there was now some accusation that someone put some slanderous 
sprays against AOC in one of the subway bathrooms. It turned out, no, not subway, airport bathrooms. Turned out to be a completely false report. And where he's seeing these things pop up left and right. It ain't going away, folks. We will always get a hate crime hoax. But uh, I think that's all that we got for going on for now, Curtis. Yeah, it was an so, interesting show off. today, and it went by pretty fast. Yes, it did. I uh, want to thank everyone that joined us up in our chat room, in our studio, as well as up on Facebook and YouTube. Still having problems with the uh, with the broadcast over on YouTube and Facebook. I'll see what I can get going. And I don't know what the heck is going on. It just uh, keeps on slowing down, speeding up, slowing down. I don't know. Anyway, we'll leave yeah. you all with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, I say good night, God bless, and have a good weekend. <laughs>